Okay, everybody, welcome to today's episode of the Chris and Paul Show. As you might suspect, I have Chris here with me, but for the first time ever, we have a guest with us today. We have Joe Agu. Thank you, Joe, for having a really easy name to pronounce. Because uh, sometimes you get people on, we just butcher their names. We have a good friend, uh, Borje Fagurli, and I butchered his name and he brought him up in a previous episode, and he DM'd me. Like, this is how you say my name. So, Borje, we love you. <laughs> uh, but I'm, we got you, we're glad you got your name all figured out. Joe has an easy name. It's Joe Agu. A G. It's even, you even spell it like you say it, right, Joe? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Agu. Uh, Agu. So, yeah. Agu. Okay. Yeah, Joe can, Agu. So, see, I even messed that up. There's not, there's not a definite nice one, Paul. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy enough. It's only three letters anyway. <laughs> it's three, well, nobody's going to forget it now, yeah, are they? Give me three letters and I messed that up too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Joe, for anybody who listens to our stuff, uh, you, I just want to say you came highly recommended by Chris, which is a big thing because he doesn't really highly recommend anybody. So you came highly recommended by Chris. He had a lot of really great things to say about you. Uh, For everybody who's listening, tell them about uh, your background, what you do, what you specialize in. I'm going to give you the platform there to kind of go into that. Yeah, that's that's much appreciated. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I I finished my... um, so my background's in sports science and, and, and nutrition. So I did my degree in sport and exercise science. Um, finished that in around 2010, then I did a, a master's in sports nutrition. Um, a f- couple of years after that, I started at the English Institute of Sport as a performance nutritionist uh, that was working with British athletics. I uh, did that for a couple of years and then started my own nutrition consultancy uh, business, which was, it's now uh, elite nutrition coaching. Um, yeah, so it was around 2018, I started a, a, a new position. This was an assistant professor in sport and exercise medicine at the University of Nottingham. And then a couple of years after that, I started a PhD part-time, which is looking at nutrition interventions, um, as well as as well as exercise on the, the effects of uh, knee osteoarthritis progression. So a bit more clinical nutrition um, so there's yeah, a, I was, was going to say, it sounds like you kind of deviated off into the clinical nutrition stuff too. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I do believe that the performance and um, sort of more gym-based nutrition is where my uh, heart lies mainly. I think the because of the, the course and everything, the the, the PhD and, and that uh, that topic is uh, it, it, it's something to sort of get into a different area of research and and trying to explore that deeply and with a sort of fresh pair of eyes rather than have any preconceived ideas about that area because when I first started reading up on it it's all pretty much new around that around that which is uh, which is nice made it a bit more difficult because you, you've not got that um, pre-existing background but yeah at, at the same time it makes it um, I suppose more advantageous in, in, in many ways um, and yeah, more recently, I'm, I'm looking to venture a bit more into uh, my business. So that's been ticking along in the background, but I'm looking to push that forward a bit, a bit more now. And uh, yeah, hence conversations with Chris and, and partly why I'm here now. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you both to uh, for you having me on the on the podcast. It's much appreciated. 
Well, we're we're very happy for you to be here with us. Like I said, you came highly recommended by Chris. And if Chris is going to highly recommend somebody, I know that, that they're going to know their stuff. So we're going to get into some really cool topics today. We're going to start off as we usually do. And we were laughing about this before the show. We're going to kind of set everything up mechanistically so that our listeners have an idea of the physiological stuff that we're going to be discussing and talking about. And Joe, you're going to you're going to give us the more nutritionally based side of things that have to do with these. Chris and I are going to talk about the physiological mechanisms that are kind of going on. And the reason why we wanted to bring you on for this is because, you know, one of the things I have said, and I actually posted about this on, uh, what's the Instagram, Twitter thing now? What's it called? Threads. Threads. I posted this on Threads. I said, is that still going? Yeah, it's still going. So I'm, I'm giving it a shot to see how it's working out. But I posted on there, I, I think, and Joe, I don't know what your experience has been with this, but mine has been in this field, once somebody attains a PhD, whether it's in exercise science or nutrition or whatever, the, it's almost like they have this free reign to speak on any topic related to any of these things, despite the fact that you're laughing, Chris. Nobody can see this, Chris, but just bust out laughing. That if they have a PhD, as soon as they start talking, let's say they have a PhD in nutrition, right? And they start talking about hypertrophy. And I'm like, people say, well, they're an expert. I'm like, but not in that, right? It's the halo effect. It's the halo yeah. effect. So, and then if somebody gets a PhD in uh, gym, you know, jockstrap management, you know, and they start talking about, um, you know, like strength training or powerlifting or, or they start talking about nutrition or whatever. People say, well, he's an expert. I'm like, but not in that. So I, when I think about somebody being an expert in something, I think about them really specializing in a very particular way, in a very in a, in kind of a field. So the, the idea that you get, you know, you, can be, you get highly educated in something like nutrition doesn't mean that correlates over to Because Chris and I talk about muscle physiology all, you know, week long for years on the end. Now we look at every study. And I still feel like at the end of the day, there's so much we don't know. So when somebody, right, Chris, there's just so much you and I go back and forth on and we look at the data, we break it down and we say, this looks like we're missing. We don't know how this part works, so forth and so on. There's still so many holes. There's much more that we don't know than we do know. And we know quite a bit now than we knew, say, five or 10 years ago. But even with like nutrition, um, there's a lot of stuff that people don't seem to clearly understand. And then if, if Chris and I are, we, I think we specialize in muscle physiology, biomechanics, anatomy, any of that kind of stuff. It's, I let go of trying to focus on kind of growing my knowledge base in other areas. Cause I'm like, if you really want to get good at this one, you just kind of focus on one. I think that's why surgeons, if somebody's a surgeon, they're a particular kind of surgeon. So I don't go see somebody who does breast implants. If I need to get like cancer removed, right? Those are two different kinds of things. Yes. I just made that analogy, Chris. I just made that one. Yeah. Hope you like it. Okay. Where How are you going with this? I, where I was going with that is the reason why that I brought Joe on. I'm glad you circled me back around. The reason why I brought Joe on is because there's some nutritional components related to this. And yes. we didn't want to start speaking on the nutrition aspect. Like we're exactly. experts in the nutrition stuff that there's, there's a mixed component here that's going to be going on in what we're talking about that has to do with the training, muscle physiology, muscle damage, uh, fatigue, all that kind of stuff. But the nutritional component, we wanted to bring somebody on that really specializes and focuses and is an expert in this area so that we can mesh the two together so people can have those aha moments. 
Exactly, because we don't want to fall into the trap of assuming that because we know about muscle physiology, we also know about nutrition because we absolutely don't. Well, I certainly don't. You have so, a good joke about that. You, 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 people don't appreciate your sense of humor because they don't know you well, <laughs> but you said just because I eat food doesn't mean that I'm a specialist in nutrition. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right, so let's, let's kick this off. We're going to start mechanistically. We want to start with the kind of the energy deficit phenomenon thing that we were talking about. And that is how does low glycogen cause fatigue in a workout? So Chris, I'm going to throw the, the layman stuff that we deal with pretty consistently myth mythologically that still goes around. That is if you go into a workout and you have low glycogen stores, you have low energy and you'll have low ATP. So your workout will be compromised. That's the basic kind of, you know, high level 20,000 foot view of what generally gets repeated about glycogen stores and going in and it's quote unquote fueling your workout. Yeah, exactly. It's called the energy crisis hypothesis and it's been debunked for like the best part of 15 or so years, but people keep re repeating it for unknown reasons. So you go into a workout, you're in a low, low carb diet. So you don't have a, you, you have less glycogen stores um, than you would if you were say eating a multitude of carbohydrates. Let's go through mechanistically what's actually going on here physiologically sure. rather than so, dealing, yeah. we'll deal with that. So talk us through Let's that. Do that. Okay. So this, this can actually happen for a number of reasons. It doesn't necessarily have to only be in a case where somebody starts a workout in a low glycogen state. It could actually simply be that the workout is so long and involves so many muscular contractions that glycogen starts to drop. I mean, ultimately, it's completely independent of you know how we get to this low glycogen state. It just is that we end up in a low glycogen state. And basically, what it uh, kind of, let me just start at the beginning. So at the beginning, when researchers were first looking at this problem, they developed, as I say, this energy crisis hypothesis. And the idea was that as we reduced our levels of, of either blood glucose or muscle glycogen, um, essentially what would happen is that we would start to reduce the flow of ATP uh, through the cross-bridge cycles because essentially the inner inavailability or the lack of that muscle glycogen would cause there to be a deficit of ATP. And of course, that would then reduce the, the actin myosin cross-bridge formations. Research over the years has shown that ATP levels do not reduce even when uh, sort of muscle glycogen is reducing and blood glucose is reducing. So what we've got is this kind of fatigue developing in line actually relatively kind of closely correlated with drops in either blood glucose or muscle glycogen or both. Uh, and as we see those those things reducing, we see the fatigue occurring, but we don't see the ATP levels dropping. So we can't connect those low levels of muscle glycogen or the low levels of blood glucose with the actual uh, kind of fatigue through that particular mechanism. The energy crisis hypothesis does not make sense because the ATP levels don't drop. Uh, and I think really that's the big shock for most people when they start to look at this for the first time, perhaps, rather than just reading about it in an article, is that the ATP levels aren't supporting this, this very, very popular hypothesis. So basically where we get the connection between the muscle glycogen dropping and the fatigue is through two separate mechanisms, one inside the brain and the other inside the muscle. So the one inside the brain is a standard supraspinal central nervous system fatigue mechanism. So when we say supraspinal, we obviously just mean above the level of the spine. So it's happening inside the brain. It's the standard one that we've talked about before. Basically, when we experience uh, anything that increases our perception of effort, it brings us closer to a maximum tolerable perception of effort for a given level of central motor ground. It's identical to the one we described in the fatigue 
podcast. So basically, um, when we have these low levels of blood glucose, low levels of muscle glycogen, there are signals that are sent to the brain. We don't understand them as well as we do in the case of things like afferent feedback from metabolites, but probably coming from multiple sources. Um, those signals increase perceptions of effort. That then brings us closer to our maximum tolerable perception effort, so we can't create as much corollary discharge. We therefore can't create as much central motor command. So it's a very normal, vanilla, supraspinal central nervous system fatigue mechanism. So uh, yeah. just, just to touch on there, to, just something I was thinking about as you were going over that, since there's always the, either the efferent feedback, right, that's going into from the brain into the, the fibers or something that's giving average feedback from the fibers into the sensory part of the brain. If we, this is just a hypothesis in my head that popped in there, since we know that an increase in the various metabolites that cause central fatigue through that afferent feedback. I would probably suspect there's something going on with the type of afferent feedback where your body is like, hey, look, bro, I'm low on glycogen, and so I'm reducing the amount of motor unit recruitment that's going to be able to happen. So there's the, the, the fatiguing effect that occurs from that too. We don't understand the mechanisms, but there's some yeah, type I mean, of feedback any receptor. Any receptor that can detect the, 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 the levels of, of glucose or glycogen would be able to start that process. Um, but to my knowledge, nobody's actually done any work to try and see where those signaling pathways are. I, I suspect that it's coming from multiple places. And I think really it's kind of like, I, I suspect that the carbohydrate mouth rinsing stuff is going in that direction, but you know, uh, see what happens. Uh, I think that was the one that showed you can literally mouth rinse with carbohydrates and you still get the same effect as eating them or something, isn't it? It's definitely got a fatigue suppressive effect, but I don't think anyone's managed to do the connections yet. I don't know if you've come across this mechanism. I just engine. remember that as you brought that up. I can't even remember that. I, I remember reading about that now, but it was the carbohydrate, yes, mouthwashing thing where it actually, you increase performance right through just like carbohydrate mouthwashing, right? Yeah, delays fatigue, was? basically. Yeah, delays fatigue, yeah. yeah, exactly. So what you just said is usually it runs counter to what has still been said quite often. And that is when you have low carbohydrates, you have low ATP, where are you getting this ATP from? Well, ATP actually tends to remain fairly constant regardless of carbohydrate intake. Yeah, ultimately, there's no problems with the ATP levels. I mean, essentially, what we're seeing uh, is that we've primarily got this supraspinal central nervous system fatigue effect. And just to recap what we talked about in the fatigue podcast, basically, this is going to suppress recruitment. That's going to be negative for hypertrophy because it's going to reduce the number of muscle fibers that are activated. On the muscle fiber side, we've got an acceleration of the excitation contraction coupling failure problem. So that's basically where we're just starting to see calcium unrelated fatigue mechanisms happen more rapidly. That's going to reduce uh, essentially the um, crossbridge formations because it's going to stop calcium ions from functioning normally inside the muscle fiber and pr producing the cross bridges. This is really interesting because this is basically going to stop the usage of ATP because by stopping cross bridge formations, you stop using ATP, which is kind of one of the reasons why we don't see reductions in ATP occurring because essentially the fatigue Because you don't need it. Because you don't need it. stopping you activating the fiber internally. Even though the fiber might be activated externally, you can't activate it internally. So you can't use the ATP because you're not actually signaling for crossbridge formations to happen. I think that's probably why we don't really see these reductions in ATP occurring because the fatigue mechanisms are protecting us uh, essentially from that happening by just stopping the usage of that ATP for, inside yeah, the Yeah, and for anybody mechanistically who doesn't understand that, whenever we have crossbridging occur, there's uh, uh, the, uh, the calcium ions actually remove the the um, 
uh, troponin binding site from the, the basically the um, the actin. Um, so that way the myosin heads can attach for the cross bridge. Yeah, essentially actin right. changes its conformation and myosin then binds with it. 100%. And then you need ATP, an ATP molecule, which gets transferred. Once you use that energy molecule, it gets transferred into ADP. And then essentially you need those for each cross bridge formation. So if cross bridging formation is not occurring, we're not even, we don't even need those, that ATP for the energy production. Not at the cross bridge level. It will be, it, there will be some ATP usage uh, to produce excitation contraction coupling, but there won't right. be the, a, there won't be the cross bridge formation level. Right. So I hope that clears up for most people, the, the understanding that um, you can't just um, push a couple thousand grams of carbohydrates down into you and solve this problem. There's, no, exactly. There's... And just to just to kind of square that final circle there, obviously, by stopping cross bridge formations, we stop mechanical tension. And by stopping mechanical tension, we stop the hypertrophy signal at the muscle fiber level. So both of these, the really important thing I always like to remember about this whole kind of role of muscle glycogen is both of the fatigue mechanisms that are produced by low muscle glycogen are actually really negative for hypertrophy, because one of them is stopping recruitment happening, which is super problematic and the other is stopping mechanical tension from being produced and of course primarily in fast twitch fibers which haven't got the mitochondria to defend themselves against excitation contraction coupling failure so you know again it's going to be very problematic for the hypertrophy stimulus so ultimately this isn't a situation we really want to be finding ourselves in because it is going to be a negative in terms of the uh, hypertrophy that the workout is going to stimulate okay so now that we've kind of we've kind of established that with the um with the low, the low glycogen um, is the issue. What, there's actually still a root cause that, that gets us, like even a step, a precursor to all of <clears throat> That is the existence of muscle damage um, that's going to cause the excitation contraction coupling failure. So the calcium ion related fatigue still the root cause, evil bad guy behind the majority of this happening. In other words, ultimately we can end up tying this back to that in some way, shape or form. Yeah, so I mean, I would say that during the workout itself, we probably aren't necessarily going to see that muscle damage happening because it is a post-workout phenomenon. But, you know, so there are scenarios in which somebody could just do a ton of exercise and they could create a low muscle glycogen and they would produce these fatigue mechanisms. We would end up with uh, a low level of um, obviously sort of uh, motor unit recruitment because we would see that reduction uh, you know, due to the supraspinal uh, central nervous system fatigue, we see the reduction in motor unit recruitment. We'd also see a problem happening at the muscle fiber level because of the calcium ion accumulation. It doesn't necessarily, I don't think, have to be muscle damage related. Um, obviously, post-workout, once we've created a muscle damaging effect, then we would see a separate uh, sort of phenomenon occurring. Okay, so let's, let's actually get into the post-workout glycogen replenishment. Okay, so I'm going to do... I'm going to do the bodybuilding um, guy um, thing. So I'm going to do the bodybuilding guy, post-workout glycogen replenishment. So I'm going to go into what was what permeated throughout the industry for probably decades and that I still hear. So perfect. Um, Joe can weigh in on this a little bit. Yeah, definitely. As, as well. So like just, just make him feel like he's like not being excluded. So Chris set up the, the, mechan the mechanistic part there. It used to be, there's a couple of things, and again, I don't even like to get into nutrition talk as much anymore, but the, the idea was, is that the glute four expression is higher, right, from, from resistance training, and then, so then you're in a much more insulin-sensitive state post-training, and then you need to replenish all of that, that glucose that you burned up in the workout. I, 
that and then so you go into your anabolic window quote-unquote anabolic window and then the first hour of your training you shell a bunch of of uh, high glycemic index carbs into your gullet and boom you replenish all of that that burnt glycogen ultimately there was i think there's a couple of problems with this number one is you don't really use a metric butt ton of glycogen in a workout. I think there's been a couple of studies. Joe, you can weigh in on this and correct me if I'm wrong. There's been a couple, there's been a few studies that's looked at the amount of glycogen that was used in workouts. And even in like whole body intensive workouts, the amount of glycogen depletion, it, I don't think ever even reached 30%. I think it's, it's pretty, in other words, it's very difficult to actually completely or de deplete glycogen to any significant degree. Then you can, you can weigh in on, on that, Joe. Joe, please tell us. I don't know if he's frozen. I think he's. I think he might have uh, lost the connection briefly. So I mean, I, I would point out though that the the glycogen depletion can be quite muscle fiber specific. I mean, obviously, we do tend to see that some fibers will be obviously used and other fibers won't be, and it'll be obviously exercise specific. It'll be localized to you know whichever muscle group's been used in the workout, but also again within the muscle itself, there'll be fast twitch fibers perhaps that are, are far more. Uh, sort of affected uh, than than perhaps some slow twitch muscle fibers, but and I don't I don't yeah, remember from those if I'd have to go back and look if it was like total I think it may have been total body glycogen, but it, it might be more, which would make sense if it's to, if it's actual muscle dependent glycogen, right? Like if you go in and you do sixteen sets for chest, then yeah, you're absolutely going to deplete the the pecs right of of their available stored glycogen. You still have glycogen, you know, in your quads, but I think that probably relates also back to the whole we still have tons of we don't ever really lose the amount of atp we always have access to plenty of atp that's not really the energy deficit like crisis that you're talking about we still have access to atp but the actual glycogen yeah exactly muscle, yeah and exactly. the muscle itself is an issue for those who can't see joe's having some issues with his um his he's in he's in a different place than he usually is so he's having some issues with i guess with like his uh his wi-fi or connection so Chris and I can, can, can we'll just continue on. Um, so there he's now he's back. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, parents' house and change of times and things, but yeah, the internet should be better. Are they on? Are they, are they on AOL from nineteen ninety eight? It's actually a yeah, Virgin. I think so. It should be better than mine at home, but I think it's because I'm often tucked away but I'm on uh, the phone hotspot which seems to be a bit more reliable we'll see so can you joe can you give us a very quick uh, kind of understanding of what the um normal sort of uh, kind of picture is in in a in, in sort of sports science nutrition science uh, regarding post-workout glycogen replenishment because we've just been talking obviously about how fatigue happens due to low glycogen levels uh, in a workout in an exercise session obviously when we finish the exercise session we are still in a low glycogen state um, can you kind of just talk a little bit about uh, you know what the what the textbooks are telling us what the what the sort of general perspective is on post-workout glycogen replenishment yeah sure so um similar to how you did it's probably worth setting the, the the scene in terms of explaining what actually glycogen replenishment or, or synthesis is so uh, if we're focusing on the muscle the the extent of the the synthesis is going to be largely dependent on the the carbohydrate that you eat as, as we've established so 
uh, following digestion and, and the absorption of a carbohydrate-containing meal, the, the glucose that results from the, the digestion of the carbohydrate uh, will enter circulation and um, go to the, the liver via the portal vein. And whilst it is available in the blood or following release from the liver, uh, the muscle can access that glucose. So in a typical post-exercise scenario, you will, or your muscles will absorb some of that glucose through um, the glucose transported GLUT4, which um, Paul mentioned. So th there are a couple of ways this can this can happen. So assuming the enough carbohydrates consumed, then pretty much near complete glycogen synthesis will occur in about within 24 hours, uh, with most of that coming in the, the first eight hours. And uh, the reason for this nonlinear absorption rate is um, several folds. So firstly, the, the more depleted your muscles are, the more sensitive they are to incoming glucose. Um, Secondly, when you've been exercising, whether that's endurance or resistance resistance exercise, your muscles are more sensitive to the incoming glucose because of a, um, a non-insulin dependent uptake of glucose. So these GLUT4 um, proteins move to the surface of the muscle cell. Um, and what that does is allows the, the infiltration of, of glucose in the absence of insulin. Um, this is enhanced typically for about 30 to 45 minutes following the following the workout through the because of muscle stimulation it's the calcium release that causes the the, the translocation of the glute 4 um, and then what happens for the rest of the, the time period the, the exercise also enhances the sensitivity of uh, insulin so when you eat carbohydrate and increase your insulin response the 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 effects of the insulin pushing the carbohydrate into the muscle cell will be enhanced as well. So there'll be a, a rapid phase, which is the first couple of hours or so after the workout. And then there'll be a slower phase of the, of, of the glucose um, storage within the, within the muscle. Um, so it's around 24 hours that you'll typically get, typically get full glycogen replenishment. Um, and as Paul also mentioned, there are, there are a few nutrition factors that will be dependent on uh, that the, the rate of replenishment will be, be dependent on. Uh, firstly, is the amount of carbohydrate. If you consume insufficient amounts, then you're not going to replenish to the extent that you want to replenish just because it's um, not that all of the replenishment comes from carbohydrates. Some of the replenishment will come from glucogenic amino acids and the um, and they, they can eventually get, get stored. So even if you eat no carbohydrate, you'll get some level of glycogen replenishment. Um, the timing, so as we've mentioned, you've got that fast phase and that, and that biphasic uh, window. The rate of carbohydrate ingestion, um, so again, that's tied to the, the dose. The type of carbohydrate, so a high glycemic index carbohydrates typically result in a higher insulin response, and that will allow for greater um, pushing of that glucose into those muscle cells. Um, related to insulin, you've also got protein. So if you consume protein alongside typically insufficient carbohydrates, then the greater insulin response will be more advantageous. Uh, and you've also got things like caffeine uh, that can increase insulin sensitivity. If you take, a, if you drink a coffee after a workout with carbohydrate, that can 
have a, a, a greater effect on the, the, the rate of replenishment. Um, it, it's worth mentioning that a lot of the, the knowledge that's been gleaned from these mechanisms and the understanding has come from the an endurance model of uh, exercise, which is easier to study because it's steady state and it's um, it's easy to measure in the, in the lab setting with uh, sort of online gas and feeding and looking at respiratory exchange ratios and things like that. Um, for resistance exercise, things are a bit more difficult because it's it can be more variable and because of the sort of stop start or the intermittent nature of uh, a typical workout then it's uh, more difficult to predict but there have been a couple of studies as as paul points out that have, have looked at the the, the types or, or the amounts of glycogen that would be depleted during a, a workout so there's one by um pasco and 92 they showed that um it was six legs of uh, six sets of leg extensions at seventy percent one RM, and these were taken to failure uh, with thirty seconds recovery. Um, and they showed that the glycogen levels—I think it was the vastus lateralis—that they used the biopsy to, to assess glycogen uh, reduced only by around twenty-five to thirty percent, uh, so around one hundred and forty millimoles um, to one hundred millimoles per kilo, kilogram of wet weight. Um, and they managed to actually recover 91% of that glycogen within six hours of um, exercise. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a while since I it's been a while since I went over these. I was just pulling off memory, but I said I think I said like 28%. That was uh, they're right around. And I think they were never able to get either weren't able to get 30% or 30% was like the maximum amount of depletion that they saw. It was something like that. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, there have been a, an individual variation, yeah, uh, for sure within that. Uh, but even three grams per, per kilo of uh, carbohydrate per body mass, so, so probably around two hundred grams over that six-hour window, was able to replace most of that. So, based on that study, at least, if, if unless you're doing crazy volumes in a given muscle, then the the, the glycogen depletion isn't going to be that great and, and there's been similar studies as well so there's one a few years earlier actually by tesh and colleagues they showed that um and this was in bodybuilders most of um which were uh, assuming high level because i think they said that seven of them were um using anabolic steroids or had used them and they they did a, a quite a bit more volume they did five sets of um each of front squats back squats leg presses knee extension all these were done until failure. Um, and they showed again that sort of 25 to 30% um, reduction. So from around 160 millimoles to uh, around 120 uh, millimoles of um, glycogen per kilo of wet weight. That which is a, an absolutely absurd amount of volume to be yeah. doing. And I think that, I think I remember from back when I used to dabble a bit more in the nutritional side of stuff, quite a bit more than I have for the last few years. I can remember that being a really, when I really got into the data about it, I was like, bro, you just really can't tap out your glycogen resources to any significant degree. So this myth that kind of permeated through bodybuilding, like we were kind of just talking about was that you go in and you train and you deplete it this massive amount of your glycogen stores, and then you got to go and eat a whole bunch of, you know, carbs after your workout, you know, in order to refuel that. It just didn't pan out when every time they tested it. And it's like you said, 
One of the things I it still irritates me is when people will say, well, we don't have data or research on like giant bodybuilders using steroids. I'm like, we do have some. I mean, we don't have a ton, but we do have some. And this was an example that I do remember. And I was like, but this is exactly the dudes who are saying you need to do this. And they actually check those guys and they're doing like 20 sets for legs. And they still didn't need to deplete legs to up to like, it was like 25 or 30% of collection. So the idea that you go through all this this glycogen and you need to replenish it all just doesn't actually hold up. And again, what I really remember now about you bringing that one up is that I'm like, okay, but this is the dudes arguing with me, but they tested it on you guys and they found the same thing. So mechanistically, that's not any different. Yeah, and with that as well, if you look at the starting points, that 160 uh, millimoles per kilo, the, the greater level of training, the more um, density of glycogen you can generally uh, fill within the muscle. If you tested the average person on the street, you're probably talking 120, um, or 100, probably around 140 millimoles per kilo. If you look at um, so-called supercompensated endurance athletes, it's around that 200 um, to 220 millimoles per kilo. So that 160 is uh, getting getting quite loaded. Obviously, there's the greater muscle mass as well. So. Um, when Chris, what are you, what are you shaking your head at? If you're making a face like that, go ahead. What What is your thoughts about what he just said? I'm just I'm just surprised to hear just how different it is in the in the endurance athletes. I guess there's a real adaption happening there. Yeah, I think um, no doubt if these bodybuilders would try to um, carb load beyond what they're normally consuming, that they could reach those sort of levels and. And the absolute levels would be much higher as well, just because their total muscle mass is going to sure. be Makes sense. Uh, 20, 30 kilos, depending on uh, drug status and, and things. But uh, at least compared to a typical endurance athlete, uh, even a, say, a natural bodybuilder is probably going to have 15, 20 kilos maybe on, on them. And yeah, enhanced guys are yeah, probably around double that, depending on the, the, the level of competition. Um, yeah, so it, it, unless you're starting to work out in a fairly depleted state, the glycogen is not going to be a limiting factor to um, exercise performance within a, um, a bodybuilder, gym goer. For strength athletes, it's probably going to be even less because it's going to, uh, they're not going to be doing the same amount of volume um, unless sort of training regimens have changed in the past sort of 10 years or so since I've looked at any of the. Uh, what, what those guys are doing, but it's uh, typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's usually sort of low volume, sort of high intensity, long rest periods and things, which is probably going to tap in more to the ATP PC system as well, isn't it? Rather than um, glycolysis. So, yeah. so would it be fair to say then, based on what you've described, that we're expecting that post-workout glycogen replenishment from a strength training workout is going to happen quickly? And therefore, when we do a workout and we use some glycogen, it's not a huge amount. We replenish it relatively quickly. By the time we then come back to the next workout with the same muscle group, we should find that it's all been replenished and there's basically no problem as a result of that uh, glycogen replenishment process for our subsequent workout. Is that kind of fair to say based on, on the kind of literature that you just described? Um, based on those, on those studies, yeah. Um, if you yes, if you're looking at complete replenishment within those, uh, within those, if you've got well trained individuals, and, and in fact, one of those studies they 
measured the, the rate of replenishment as well. Within six hours, you're talking at least 90% uh, replenishment. If they push carbohydrates higher, um, so at levels which you'd expect complete replenishment, no doubt you'd get that within um, six to eight hours in, in, in most people, based on, based on those individuals and those studies. Uh, the caveat to that is that it's assuming um, minimal muscle damage. Um, if, if there is a large level of muscle damage go. present, that, <laughs> that, will, uh, that will, of course, uh, delay the, yes. the, the rate of replenishment. Yeah, because basically this is this is the point where we arrive at the the key question for this podcast. Because um, obviously, I talked to you about this a while ago. Um, I, I brought this up with, with Paul a, a long time ago, and it's essentially this observation that if we look at the eccentric training studies, this picture completely changes. Because if we look at the eccentric training workouts, we suddenly don't get that glycogen replenishment happening. Um, you know, I think I've, I've found studies that show there's there's um, insufficient or inadequate glycogen replenishment even like over a week after a, an eccentric training workout, and it does seem to be related to this muscle damage response. Um, and as far as we can tell at the moment, what looks uh, to be happening is that the uh, muscle damage uh, creates the inflammatory response, and that inflammatory response seems to act as some kind of barrier or it repels um, the influx of glucose into the muscle fiber as we're trying to replenish the can glycogen. I, can I call it? Go for it. Can yeah. I call it a glucose interference effect? Can I use? I'm that? not sure you're allowed to call fatigue interference call effects. <laughs> <laughs> People get upset when you call fatigue interference effects, even though they clearly are interference but effects. I, it's the perfect word, doing. right? I, I don't know. Like I, I upset people one time when I said that fatigue causes interference effects, and I'm like, but this actually sounds like another interference effect. So it, it sounds like that when we have. Uh, muscle damage, and like Chris was just talking about there from the eccentric studies, and I remember these as well, is that we, as Chris was saying, up to a week, we saw uh, inefficient or, or inadequate glycogen. Incomplete, up, yeah. Incomplete up to a week after pure eccentric-based training. So that change of the contraction mode, if you're somebody who's doing an eccentric-based workout, which no really bodybuilders don't really do that. So Except for we, cheat curls. <laughs> yeah, and then they're just training the brachioradialis and then absolutely destroying the biceps. But um, in bodybuilding workouts where we see those, I think that one of the things, in the, and Joe pretty much solidified all that was I was that when I had gone through the glycogen replenishment research, it was how long the workout is, how intensive it is, is going to have a direct degree on how fast the glycogen gets replenished and then what degree of glycogen will get replenished in the muscle. However, as Chris and I are talking about, there's going to be a direct response related to that over replenishment, depending on how much muscle damage is caused from the workout itself. Do you, Joe, do you think that's a probably a true statement? Yeah, it, it seems as though the, the 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 level of damage will scale inversely with the the ability to restore glycogen, and um, th there seems to be a few mechanisms at play, and I'm, I'm not sure the contributions of, of each of them. It, it seems as though um, some level of attenuation of GLUT4 translocation or, or activity is going to be um, uh, play there. This reduced insulin sensitivity, um, both in the muscle and systemically, there's there's also oxidative stress, which can affect those 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 two factors as well. You, you put up one of those studies up, Chris, didn't you, where it 
looked at the um, the the sarcoplasm and, and the, the the integrity of that. So it seems as though there's the damage that's occurring is affecting the, the the ability to absorb the glucose. So it's not necessarily an issue with getting glucose to the muscle. It's that it's yeah, it's not a supply problem. Accept, yeah, it's a demand the, problem. The, the, the incoming yeah. glucose. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is just such an important point because there's this perception that we can simply throw more carbohydrates at the problem and, and fix that deficit of glycogen. And it's not possible because it's actually the muscle fiber that's basically just essentially saying that in this damaged state, it's not prepared to accept any glucose to do the uh, to do the glycogen replenishment process. This is this is. I was trying to think of like an analogy or metaphor. Just did Guardians three right with Drax's chalk and try to give analogies metaphor. But I'm going to give a good one. Don't shake your head like that, Chris. I'm going to give a good one. This is the difference. Think about this. You'll like. I think you'll like this one. Is the difference between if you got if you're home and Amazon packages are being delivered to your door and you actually are there to open the door and pull the package in. Whereas if nobody's home and you have a bunch of Amazon packages delivered and they all just end up stacking up outside the door, there's not a problem with Amazon. There's not a problem with supply. There's a problem with you not being home to open the door to actually bring the packages in. That's actually a really good analogy. So Thank if, you. if Thank we keep you. with that, if we keep with that for a moment. <laughs> so when I when I posted some stuff about this on Instagram, everybody started saying to me, "Well, where do the packages go then if they can't get into the house? Where where do the Amazon packages go? I mean, where where does all this carbohydrate go that we are currently consuming if we can't get it into the muscle fibers that are depleted?" Um, and I told them to ask a nutritionist. So I'm so, basically so we Joe is going to ask so Joe, <laughs> answer the question if, if, for me. So, Joe, in the situation, let's pretend a situation where we have a, a lot of muscle damage, and as we were just talking about, potentially, let's we have an inflammatory effect. We have something going on, say, at the either the sarcolemma or the cytoplasm, or we have we like I said, we're not sure where the potential interference effect is going. But if we ingest a bunch of carbohydrates in a muscle damaged state, we are aware of the fact that it's like we don't look like we can get the same degree of replenishment. What do you think is probably happening with that extra glucose ingestion? Um, so if you ingest um, carbohydrate generally, so that, let's say if we start off with 100 grams of carbohydrate, we know that your body is only going to have access to around sort of 92 to 94% of those or 92 to 94 grams just because of the, the thermic effect of feeding. So out of those remaining 90 or so grams that are that enter circulation and are available for tissues. So assuming muscle glycogen stores are um, not full or not saturated, then some will still go towards muscle glycogen replenishment. And it's, it's worth remembering that just because that muscle's damaged doesn't mean that uh, other muscles aren't damaged and aren't ready to accept um, glucose. And even those damaged muscles are going to um, accept some of the, the glucose, you know, just not to the same um, rate as they typically would. Uh, you've got liver depletion of glycogen as well, which um, during a workout, I'm not sure it's been measured with a resistance training, but if you look at, say, steady state endurance, then you'll deplete liver glycogen probably around about 50% after around 60 to 90 minutes of um, 
fairly in, intense, sort of moderate intensity exercise. So you've got glycogen replenishment. Um, it can, depending on the amount of carbohydrate that's coming in, if, if there's, there's, there's more than your liver and, and muscles need, then you can increase your fuel utilization more towards carbohydrate, which is what you tend to see with people on low fat, higher carbohydrate diets. Um, if you're consuming a, an absolute ton of carbohydrates and over consuming calories, then there's, there's a potential for de novo lipogenesis, which is the, the conversion of the, the carbohydrate and glucose into, um, fatty acids, which can then be stored as, as fat in, in humans. Though this is quite a rare occurrence. And even when it does occur, it's not to any real extent. You're talking grams per day of the fat stored through, um, I don't, I don't want that point to go bypassed because I, a lot of people don't understand the fact that it's actually, you don't, it's, I'm going to say the word relatively difficult, but when you have, are in, are in a low fat diet, it's actually quite difficult to store carbohydrates as fat. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, if, if you're in a low enough carbohydrate diet for, for long enough, so there's, I've seen uh, posts where people have picked up on the papers where they've shown that the, the rate of de novo lipogenesis is, is extremely low in humans. So you might it might be someone consuming 500 grams of carbohydrate per day, energy balance, or, or assuming they, they can stay in energy balance with that, with sort of higher level of training, then um, it's less than 10 grams a day that's going to be stored as, as fat. So 10 grams of um, triglyceride or triacylglycerol. Um, if you then try to sort of cheat the system by consuming high protein, very low fat, very high carbohydrates, so then you're thinking, oh, great, I, I can't store fat, but I'm in a really anabolic state, um, your body will ramp, ramp it up, and, and there are mechanisms to, to store that, then you, you're not necessarily going to get... Um, if you're, especially if your liver and muscles are saturated with, with glycogen, that, that excess carbohydrate's got to go somewhere. Um, you'll no doubt be burning purely or close to uh, pure carbohydrate, just even at the rest, you'll be relying heavily on carbohydrate utilization. But then your DNL should ramp up quite um, heavily in, in that situation. But I'm not sure it's been studied in, in any. Um, sort of practical model. They haven't got a bunch of bodybuilders in and, 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 and done that. That's what's, uh, there's no reason biochemi uh, sort of biochemistry standpoint why that wouldn't occur, but that's the most plausible outcome of that scenario. Uh, yeah, the only other outcome is that you are excreting glucose, which yeah doesn't generally happen to, to non-diabetics. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's not something to be to be concerned about. It's an interesting thought experiment, and, and I, I think people would be at an advantage with that. Though, so if you had two people in excessive maintenance, so say a twenty percent surplus, one very low fat, high carb, and one sort of moderate carb, moderate fat, then uh, I do suspect that the the one with a lower fat and higher carb would probably be better off, at least in the short term, in terms of uh, body composition changes. Um, eventually, the body will adapt to find a way around um, around things. But yeah, to, to yeah, I like the way that you phrased that earlier. Is that 
if you're trying to cheat the system because you're like, I'm going to pull all my fat out and I'm going to smash a whole bunch of carbs and protein because protein really can't be stored as fat. It's way too metabolically expensive to try to store protein as fat. It's almost impossible to do. It's basically impossible. Even in metabolic work studies, they saw that protein was never stored as fat in surpluses. And, mm-hmm. and the um, uh, Josie Antonio studies, their practical application, was they, they even upwards of 400 grams of protein a day, none of it was stored as fat. So the cheat the system kind of thing is, I think that's really funny. I think it was 300 grams a day of protein. It was a lot of protein. None of it was ever stored as fat. But then that's the other thing you end up finding out is that carbs, it's, it's actually a little more difficult to store those. They're not readily stored as fat, whereas actual fat intake lipids are actually stored quite easier as fat. And then the, the real tr- problem people run into is the surplus where you have fat and carb intake in high amounts together. Yeah, that's um, essentially the the carbohydrates will be uh, utilized first. So if, if you're at a energy balance and then you create a twenty percent surplus all from carbohydrate, uh, you will gain body fat, but it's not because of the carbohydrate. It's because of the increase in calories. You'll be storing more of that fat that's in your diet um, because the carbohydrates uh, more of it's being oxidized. So. Um, yeah, there, there are, yeah. So uh, again, using the uh, the phrase cheating the system, it's it's um, yeah. Nobody's really managed to outsmart the the body in the, in the sort of hundreds of years that people have been been trying to. Um, it seems as though the closest we can get to that's sort of the grail is probably um, drugs. Uh, so yeah, but that's uh, probably a, a, a podcast for another day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll do that another time. Uh, so basically, yeah, swinging back around to that. So in a state of high high muscle damage and somebody's eating a bunch of carbs, we still have liver glycogen that has to be replenished. Um, and essentially, since it's it's quite difficult to store carbs as fat, let's say somebody is to have, has a low degree of, let's say somebody goes into post-workout and does 200 grams of carbs, which is a lot. Let's say they do 100 to 200 grams, and then but they're doing these highly um, high volumized, high reps, high, highly muscle damaging type workouts, and then they're doing 150 to 200 grams of carbs. If we understand that there's a, a a glucose interference effect, I'm gonna start saying that, Chris. That's my new one. My glucose interference effect. Then where are these extra carbohydrates going exactly? Um. So most of it will be going to muscle that's been used during that exercise because those muscles will be uh, damaged to different degrees. It's uh, in those studies that have demonstrated the the levels of muscle damage, they assess only um, part of the muscle that's been, that's been exercised essentially. So they'll use a, and I think then the knee extensions or one of them, it'll be the, was it the eccentric knee extensions in one of them? So they use like a usually, right? yes, usually. So there'll, there'll yeah. be adjacent muscles that will be of, will be worked, and um, in in a sort of normal bodybuilding workout, there will be muscles that have been stimulated but not um, obliterated, like they have been in a knee study. So they'll be ready to absorb the the, 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 the glucose that's coming in. Um, I think with that, well, hold on while Joe's saying that, you know, what I immediately thought of is I thought of our frequency talk 
Well, this is um, this is absolutely going to end up being a frequency conversation. That was our frequency talk, bro. Yeah, it has to be. Do you understand where I'm going with that? Do you well, ultimately, yeah. the the post workout recovery process impacts on training frequency. So, if we have a um, and just kind of uh, forgive me a quick hijack of this moment because I think uh, some people are going to go away from this podcast hearing the fact that eccentric training is what causes these problems to occur in the suppression of post-workout glycogen replenishment. But actually, any workout that causes muscle damage is going to cause the same issue. It's just eccentric is the model that we use because it's easy to create a lot of muscle damage in most people. But any time we've got a post-workout fatigue effect, we're going to have muscle damage. We're going to have an inflammatory response. We're going to have these problems. But in terms of um, basically this impacting on the frequency conversation, if we have this lack of uh, sort of glycogen replenishment occurring because we've created muscle damage and the inflammation is preventing the glucose from getting into the fibers, then ultimately we're going to go into a following workout with a degree of glycogen depletion as we start that subsequent workout. And the fact that we may have partially replenished the muscle isn't going to stop that happening. We're still going to be going into that next workout with a state of some glycogen depletion. And that is then going to accelerate the fatigue mechanisms that I described at the beginning of this podcast, which is the supraspinal CNS fatigue and the excitation contraction coupling failure. So we're going to go into the next workout and we're immediately from the very first set going to have a reduction in our motor unit recruitment levels and a reduction in our mechanical tension levels. And that is going to be a problem for our stimulus that we're going to create in that subsequent workout. There's there's quite a few really good nuggets that just happened here. Um, I was going to actually uh, but but something that Joe hinted at there when I said it was related to our frequency is when we talked about bro splits and we were talking about when you know when the whole volume is equated in a bro split then you know why does everything kind of eventually pan out looking similar when they put it in group effects and something Joe said there made me think about that right and that's you and I talked about that was like well there in every workout you do there's some degree of overlap so even in these workouts where they're doing eccentric training and the other thing I want to clarify there is that when you and I say eccentric training we're literally talking about the eccentric contraction phase we are not talking about the lowering phase of dynamic repetitions because somebody's yeah, going to hear Yeah, we can that. say this as many times as we like. Bro, because so somebody's <laughs> going to go away from this and say, but you and Chris said, that, I'm like, that is not what we said. When we talk about eccentric training, we're literally talking about something like a Nordic curl where you're just focusing on the eccentric portion of the contraction phase. When we talk about lowering phases, we try to differentiate the two because they're not the same. So, Absolutely. But in this context, we're talking about the eccentric training literature, but yeah. we're apply, we are applying it to bodybuilding circumstances where people are annihilating muscles with tons of volume, intensifiers, drop sets, that kind of thing. Yeah. And they're creating fatigue that lasts for many, many days afterwards. That is yeah. basically the same thing because ultimately the fatigue mechanism is identical. We just It's just a calcium ion accumulation issue. Yes. I think that we don't want to go too far down the route of saying that eccentric training is special because ultimately, from a fatigue point of view, I mean, um, because um, ultimately it's the same mechanism of fatigue. It doesn't create fatigue through a different mechanism. It's always calcium. No, totally. The only reason why I say I'm trying to differentiate there is that if we talk about, we use eccentric training as the kind of the, the model, the foundation is that we're building off of and we look at the mechanisms that are occurring there. But then mechanistically, as you're just saying there, we see those same mechanistic problems when we do too much volume, when we do high repetitions, drop sets, we induce all this muscle damage. The mechanisms are actually just the same. It's just an accumulation of calcium ions 
into the cytoplasm that wreak havoc and then the furthering mechanisms continue to persist for days after. Those are all the same exact mechanism. We just see it separated out when we do eccentric training and that we can look at that and go, okay, so when we look at just these mechanisms happening at their greatest magnitude with nothing else occurring, what do we see happen? And so that's the reason for isolating out eccentric training from yes. dynamic type contractions. But the part I was going to get to there that Joe hit on was that he said, this was a really good point. I didn't want to let it go. And it was a really good practical application point. He's like, well, you got other stuff going on when you're going to do a workout. Like if you, if I do a max set of leg extensions, I have to contract my lats, my forearms, my biceps. There's all uh, basically isometric contraction happening just to hold myself in the seat. So those muscles still experience, and I think that's what Joe was getting at there, is like you go in and you do workouts, regardless of what kind of workouts you're doing, that there's other muscles that are not going to experience the same degrees of the muscle damage that will be receptive to glycogen replenishment. Unless I'm misinterpreting that, Joe. Is that kind of what you were getting at there too? Yeah, that, that, that certainly covers the, uh, the, the point. It's, um, yeah, what, what I was talking about um as well and yeah and, and, and your point completely stands within the within response to that but say because you're only assessing glycogen levels with a, a biopsy in one location um so say if you're assessing glycogen depletion with squats and you look at vastus lateralis but you ignore um the glutes or whatever other muscles are going to be uh, engaged during a, a squat and then then Within within an entire squat, not every muscle is going to be damaged equally. Um, so the, the the one that's going to be damaged most is probably going to be limiting to that exercise in terms of um, muscular failure. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but that's uh, probably the, the the fair assumption. Then glycogen will be readily available to those muscles that are damaged to a, to a lesser degree. But um, I, I think. Circling back to those muscle damaging papers, those studies have set out deliberately to um, damage muscle as, uh, as much as possible. It, it's, it's worth putting into context those study designs in, in comparison to what somebody would typically do in a, in a workout. So you are aware that the, some people do approach their workouts the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, this is the point we're making. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Because, you know, the point that we are kind of trying to make with this podcast is that, you know, the approach that Paul and I take with programming is explicitly to avoid that happening because we program to avoid muscle damage. But there are a lot of people running around who are doing 20 or 30 sets, you know, of knee extensions or whatever, or 60 sets a week for glutes or whatever it is that they're doing that's completely insane. And ultimately, lots of intensifiers and various other silly things. And, and yeah, they are essentially setting out to create an enormous amount of muscle damage. So you're absolutely right in what you say that a strength training workout probably shouldn't be designed in the same way as the that research the, That was the best comeback model. that could have ever happened right there in that moment. I was, was ready for it was, because yes, I get this like, all well, the yeah, time. Yeah, but these studies are just made to test muscle damage. Chris is like, but you do understand that there's people actually approaching their workout exactly that kind of manner. <laughs> and it is completely crazy, but you know, you're absolutely right. 
So, so in a, in a in a, an ideal replenishment uh, state, do you have kind of a recommendation that you've worked with with your guys that you've worked with, say, um, within using the same? We're going to use the same metrics Chris and I use, which I believe is an intelligent approach to getting the maximum amount of hypertrophy by mitigating fatiguing interference effects. In that type of situation where somebody goes in. And generally speaking, Chris and I don't program more than four or five exercises in a workout. I think just, just kind of take somebody through kind of our practical application stuff. We've been working together for a few years now and probably four or five exercises. I think five at the most, Chris and I have talked about when we've, we kind of. I'm uncomfortable it. going beyond five. I think there's a big I, I generally for four. the same. I think anything after five, I, I tend to find a fall off in my ability to kind of just approach a set or an exercise with a decent degree of effort. But somewhere, if somebody's going in there performing four or five exercises and they're doing anywhere from two to three sets to failure in a four to six rep range, that's kind of an overview. And it, that needle can move a little bit based on individual yeah. preference. Very right. that's, kind of a, that's kind of a basic overview. Anywhere, I think, yeah, one to three sets per exercise, four to five exercises in the workout. What would be an approach there for somebody who is wanting to what is their kind of your idea there that can work out how how should they go about glycogen replenishment post-workout um so i think the best approach rather than focusing on replenishment per se is probably to try to ensure that glycogen levels are uh, reasonably stocked up on um, a consistent basis anyway at least prior to um big or, or key workouts so yeah i think the the best that an athlete or a bodybuilder or anybody could, could hope for is trying to enter each key workout and it's not going to be possible with every workout is uh, sufficiently loaded as, as possible and that's that's not to say you're going to be um, slamming eight to ten grams per kilo of carbohydrate every every day before big workouts and trying to sort of super compensate but trying to reach those levels that um, or sort of that 150-ish, um, so more or less that's sort of 75 plus percent stocked because even over over a course of a, a fairly uh, voluminous workout, it's it's only going to be around 20, 30, um, probably maximum 40% depletion there. So that isn't going to be limiting to uh, performance. That that the cause of fatigue there is, uh, is isn't going to be related to glycogen it's only when glycogen levels are um reach a certain threshold and, and, and that's what chris talks about in terms of that sort of um, central mechanism so it isn't that the glycogen's been depleted because we never get true glycogen depletion um some fires right. might might be but it's um it's usually around that sort of 20 25 millimole per weight where your brain will sort of put the brakes on things and that's where you'll get the the contribution to fatigue and um, through sort of central means and um, EC coupling uh, failure. So I think trying to ensure sufficient glycogen ahead of time is probably the best approach. I, I don't think it's worthwhile consuming carbohydrate during uh, an exercise, a resistance exercise session, because there's not going to be the level of um, depletion there that's going to be worthy of that. I think... Um, having sufficient glycogen beforehand 
And in terms of a post-exercise meal, I think if somebody's consuming the carbohydrate levels that are going to maintain that sort of a level that we would want in a, in a bodybuilder, it's, it's probably going to be around that five grams to seven grams per kilo of body mass per day. And that's assuming the sort of the, the higher end. Some people who train uh, less frequently, so maybe someone who's training three to four times per week, maybe yeah, it might be sort of four four to five grams per kilo per day would be sufficient there. So within that post-exercise window, I think it's worth trying to consume at least a gram or two per kilo of body mass within the first couple of hours after that session. And as long as you're hitting your daily carbohydrate um, goals for that for that given day, then you there's not really any, any much more you can do. Um, and in terms of um, inhibition of glycogen replenishment with muscle damage, even then if you enter the next session with a degree of damage and maybe not 100% um, replenishment, it's still going to be sufficient to get you through that workout. It's only with... Um, a series of very high intense um, workouts where you're not enabling that level of recovery where it's going to ultimately potentially going to be an issue. So if you're slowly chipping away that level of glycogen, you're not quite repleting between those sessions by maybe the sixth sixth or seventh session, you, you might be at a, at a point where glycogen is going to be limiting. Uh, I think at that point, it's probably more of a programming issue than a nutritional issue because you're not allowing the well, it's basically overreaching, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think that some of the got extrapolated over from the endurance data where carb timing became more important for people doing, say, events where they were doing, have multiple events a day or something where, and I think some of they got extrapolated over into the bodybuilding area. So if you were doing, you know, an endurance uh, event in the morning, if you had another one by the afternoon, it was far more important to replenish glycogen within you know, some time frame, you know, in between those two. Whereas I think what bodybuilding is, they, oh, well, we just trained, we need to put replenish all this glycogen. And I, I think there was some tie in that. Um, whereas like, as you said earlier, this is another thing I didn't want people to miss. As long as you're replenishing, you got before the next workout, you're probably going to be okay. That, that That's really kind of the, the landmark to look for is that you're just replenishing whatever you need to replenish with carbohydrates within 24 hours, e.g. before you do the next workout. And I think some of this yeah. carbohydrate loading stuff was extrapolated over from the um, <clears throat> the endurance field where they would test this and be like, oh, well, it's far more important if you're doing an endurance workout in the morning and an endurance workout in the evening to go ahead and replenish glycogen. And as we talked about earlier, the endurance work depletes glycogen somewhat far more significantly than bodybuilding style workouts. So it became more important to either have like some type of carbohydrate timing um, strategy with that kind of stuff. Uh, the one of the things I thought of when you were reading that up was the whole, remember when Michael Phelps was winning gold medalist and he was having to eat enormous amounts of food every day because he was doing all the, the swimming that he was doing. There was no other way for him to sustain his mass and the energy he had to do for all the swimming workouts. Yeah. Um, yeah, de definitely that's the case. And the thing is, as well as, as nutritionists, as we have to borrow a lot um, mechanistically from endurance data because it's that's been the, the staple of endurance research or uh, nutrition and particularly carbohydrate research since the since the 60s and, and we've known since at least in terms of 
scientific report we've known since early 20th century that carbohydrate is going to play a role in, in endurance capacity to, to a level. And in the 60s, we learned about um, glycogen levels with the um, Bergstrom needle and, and, and stuff with the biopsies and, and things. So we've, we've had to rely heavily on endurance models of exercise, but there's far more leeway when it comes to resistance exercise, unless it's taken to a crazy level, like Chris says, when you're doing 30, 40 sets per uh, body part in a single workout, something like that, which would be um, crazy. But it, it, here's the thing. That's a, a battle that we laugh about every week is that when you look at the data, not to hijack this at all, but that's why it's funny. When you look at the data, we're like, People call us low volume guys, and I'm like, we're not low volume. We're we're the adequate. We're we're the optimal volume guys. We're like, what's the data? If we're taking two minutes rest, three minutes rest between you know our working sets, then we see some cap right around four to six sets or so. So when we're taking very short rest periods, it's more it's about double that. So the people who have this don't look at all of this stuff. Actually, look at the data. We we'll always call us low, low volume guys. I'm like, no, we're just long rest period adequate volume guys. And that's essentially what happens there. So it's like the part there I think that exists is there is this dichotomy between those things because the people that go in and they say, well, I need to do 40 sets. This is not a joke. Like if people like I need to do 40 sets for glutes a week, you know, or that's I think even something that's been that's circulated is like, well, the average bikini competitor does 40 sets of glute glutes a week. I, I, that's literally something, I don't know if it's an actually peer reviewed article at this point, but it's something that's been looked at and measured in some kind of way. That's like the average bikini competitor does something like 40 sets for glutes in a week. I'm like, that's absolutely the most inefficient way you can go about training in a week, but this is a very, very common thing. And then, so the idea is because I'm doing excess amount of work, I need these, this, this extra degree of carbohydrate intake to support that stuff. I think this is really starting to get into the overreaching territory where we're mm -hmm. saying that fatigue is accumulating from one workout to the next. I mean, ultimately, any program that involves the accumulation of fatigue is going to suffer this problem because there is an accumulation of muscle damage over time. I mean, that's essentially what accumulation of fatigue means in this context. So if we're increasing muscle damage over time, then by definition, we must be reducing muscle glycogen over time because there's no way to replenish it as we are continually creating this additional muscle damage. Um, so what's going to happen is that every workout that that person goes into as they're working their way through this overreaching block is they're going to be experiencing even more of these central and peripheral fatigue mechanisms that are impairing the hypertrophy stimulus. And ultimately, I've kind of argued in the past on, on the concept of overreaching is that essentially we're just creating a, an increasingly negative problem in terms of our ratio of stimulus to fatigue is getting worse and worse and worse over the program because we're just doing more and more of this volume and more fatigue is happening, but the stimulus is getting smaller and smaller. So I think this is why overreaching in the literature has been plagued by this kind of inability to prove what people have wanted to prove which is that there's this kind of massive supercompensation effect afterwards and there just isn't because the stimulus just isn't there yeah um so out of interest how frequently do you program somebody to um so say let somebody trains legs how, how often would you have them train their legs in a given week 
Well, this is where Paul and I, <laughs> Paul and I, like the one did, thing that we we, we disagree don't have on. like hundred <laughs> percent alignment on, but it's not really a disagreement. It, it there's a couple of things we went over when we went over the frequency, a podcast, and that is that different people can tolerate different degrees of stress. I could never train my legs three times a week where somebody else could train their legs three times a week and recover just fine. If I train my legs, I, it's generally twice one week and it's once the next week. So that's what I found for me that allows me to recover. And as Chris has told me before, he's like, well, yeah, but you're a little bit more on that, that side of being a little more like, High responder. I, 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 yeah, high responder. I like, I, I started lifting at 14, I was 98 pounds. Four years later, I was 225. So I like it. I grew relatively easy, very fast. And when I got on anabolics, I, I went from 255 to 290 within a short period. So that, like, I not like pro bodybuilder level stuff, but I have always responded pretty well, con, like, compared to the average person to growing. So that lines up mechanistically with what Chris and I have talked about was that people who actually grow better are going to grow easier, who have or high responders to stimulus have maybe have a little bit more of a ratio of type two fibers probably can't train as often, can't, can't train with this much volume. Whereas the people we've talked about that are non-responders actually need more volume and need to train more frequently because their fiber type ratio is going to be a little bit uh, more advantage to um, being able to, well, what's the best way to explain that? That they don't get muscle damage as easily, but they also don't grow as easily. They don't get the same stimulatory effect because of their fiber type ratio. They're able to kind of, they have a little bit more um, type one fibers, uh, or they have like, and they have the high degrees of um, of, of mitochondria density. So they they have better protective effects. There's always those trade offs, right? So it's like Chris could train legs three times a week and see really great results from that. I would absolutely be in the tank if I tried to train legs three times a week. I could I could do it, but this is something he brought up too, and I can make myself totally look down here. And he said, if you're going to train a muscle really often, that's where you have the least amount of forgiveness. So you have to be super exact in your programming. So the more often you're going to train a muscle, you have the, the smallest margins for error. You cannot mess up. You have to be really precise. So, so when some people look at whole body training, I, it's really kind of a, an interesting thing. A whole body training split are really great for novices, but if a, a, a very advanced person is going to use a three three times a week, it becomes the most complex split. It does. You can use. It's super difficult. To make yes, it work. very difficult. I and I would have to sit down and get so precise with with a full body a week split, and that would, I would, I would I don't even but I don't know how that I enjoy my training as much, um, but I I could do it, but. For somebody who's lucky with your, your question was, I think most people, and some people will say, well, this will go with, against the content you post. I, I post the data, but then I you always get caveats in there. I think that most people will probably be slightly better off training any muscle group twice a week. But the reason why I say that is because I would end up hesitating to always say that is because of the simple fact is I think most people program really crappy. I think most people, if they do their own programming, don't know what they're really doing and that isn't I, I think actual intelligent programming is far more difficult than the average layman wants to admit i've had so many people leave my groups and they come back later and they're like you're right you just this is much more difficult to do and when you lay stuff out i don't understand all the nuances of why you're doing what you do but i just know the progress that i see when i'm doing your programs and then when i leave and try to do it myself it just always goes to hell in a handbasket 
And Chris does the same thing. He just has, he approaches it a little differently, but mechanistically I can program for somebody three times a week and I will, they would at first probably be irritated because they're like, why are we doing so little? Why is it these specific movements? I'm like, because if I do what the average person is doing to you, you're absolutely not going to see any results. And then when the results pour in, they're like, I just stopped questioning him and just do what his programs say. So I think if you're looking at just kind of an average, Chris and I would agree on twice a week, it's going to be probably the sweet spot for the That's majority. That's where we overlap. <laughs> yeah. That's where we'll overlap. Twice a week will probably be the sweet spot for the majority of people. Yes, I think um, I think with that in mind that if, if somebody's got that seventy-two hours or so to replenish glycogen, um, because the, the point the point I was uh, making earlier about these studies being um, different than how training should should be programmed, uh, I should have caveated uh, Chris. Then they are an extreme to trying to cause damage. So you've got glycogen depletion, then you've got the eccentric um, workout. And, and this is in resistance training, naive men as well. So they've got um, that sort of newbie damage that you get, which um, for an experienced trainer, uh, for an experienced trainee, you would have, um, I suppose, the comfort of the sort of repeated bout effect that the, the level of damage wouldn't be at the same level as you would initially get from from that from that same workout, and and, and one of the papers that um, you posted, Chris, that there's a a similar protocol employed by well-trained men, and they they were actually managed to replenish eighty-five percent of glycogen by twenty-four hours. So it, it does seem as though the the better trained somebody is, you can tolerate um, that that stimulus to to a greater degree, which we already know, but it's nice to see that confirmed from a resynthesis um, standpoint as well. So by that 72 hours, as long as they have, um, as long as the programming is correct, and I don't think going above your normal or going beyond um, considering your daily carbohydrate needs needn't be sort of worried about. I think that's all you should really focus on for, for most people. I think if, um, I think if somebody is, functionally overreaching. I think it's the, the term where people do it deliberately to try to cause that sort of um, super compensation effect, if you like, then they'll probably need to be more thought about it and trying to make sure that glycogen's stocked up ahead of time to a, to, to a greater degree and replenishment's probably focused on um, better. But yeah, I think with so it's a really, really good point there. It's, you, you actually made the same point earlier when you were talking like that this ahead of time idea because you made the same point when you were talking about, you know, because uh, Paul asked you about post-workout glycogen replenishment strategies and one of your comments was actually it's worth thinking about making sure that as you go into the workout you are kind of replenished with glycogen like, you know, maybe just taking some carbohydrate an hour or two beforehand or I don't think you gave any specific time uh, frame but just in terms of beforehand and you've just made the same point again regarding going into an overreaching phase it's like going into that overreaching block if it's a week or so uh, in a state of, of of glycogen perhaps super compensation is a strategy that's worth considering if people really want to go down that route of overreaching and i think it's you know completely mad and i would never do it or program it but if people want to do that then going into that block in a state of Glycogen supercompensation is probably a really good idea. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's just preparing you for the 
for the possibility that you're not going to be able to completely replenish that glycogen. So it's, um, yeah, I suppose an analogy would be if, if, if you know, you, if you know, you're not going to have access to, um, um, a cash machine, you want to make sure that you've got enough ahead of time so that it's going to last however many days that you're going to be so out and about. Um, yeah, that, that's, um, yeah, the, 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 I suppose the long and short of my thoughts on the, the carbohydrate intakes uh, around that. Um, things would differ slightly if somebody's um, dieting and, and it sort of brings up the, the question of how should you create that deficit then. So I think if, um, if somebody is training with a, a reasonably high volume, then I think that should be the first macronutrient that would be cut. Um, but for that reason, that you can create a deficit and still maintain some level of glycogen. Um, it wouldn't be the same as though if, if the fat were present, because now you're relying more on carbohydrate for just general uh, fuel uh, metabolism throughout the sort of rest of the, the hours that you're not training. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't need too much, too much thought unless you, unless you know you're going to be sort of over overreaching interestingly um before uh, this podcast paul and i were just talking about a practical uh, application that uh, is related to this which is this idea of um super compensating um, muscle glycogen for bodybuilders prior to a competition um and this is this is a really interesting one because anecdotally a lot of bodybuilders uh, have complained that they don't always get their timing uh, correct and so they kind of uh, don't look the way they want to look on stage with the super compensation effect and maybe they look great in the gym a day or two later uh, so there's a kind of a delay in terms of the the kind of the appearance that they're looking for um, and i kind of i've wondered i speculated whether this is because as um, bodybuilders do tend to go into comp towards competition they can often change their programming slightly and obviously changing programming's uh, programming slightly is going to cause uh, sort of a, a muscle damage effect because they're changing exercises also they tend to adopt higher repetition sets so they maybe have historically used more sort of heavy or moderate loads and towards competition they start to use these uh, kind of uh, high rep sets, um, which which are known to cause more muscle damage. So I'm kind of speculating really whether maybe some of this research we've been discussing, you know, over the last uh, sort of half an hour to an hour or so, is essentially um, kind of uh, explain or could explain what we what we see here anecdotally, which is that the bodybuilders are experiencing this kind of muscle damage effect, inflammation starts to suppress muscle glycogen uh, replenishment um, in the post-workout period. So they don't get the look they're looking for until they actually take a break and fatigue goes away and the inflammation goes away and then they get the, the muscle glycogen back into the muscles again. Yeah, it's, um, I think yeah, well, when you asked me on this um Podcast is something I thought about. Actually, how is the your bodybuilding standpoint? How is this going to affect that sort of loading phase prior to a competition? Because um, yeah, that, that that sort of peak week, people would generally want to maximise their glycogen stores and bring that water in the in, into the muscles so that they can appear fuller. And, and like you say, it's, it's typically the case that a bodybuilder does a a show and then they go out and have a cheap meal and eat everything that they've been avoiding for 16 weeks and then the next day they actually look leaner and 
fuller because of the additional glycogen. Um, exactly. I think, I think the damage could be at a, a play there. Certainly, I think um, if, if if they're not able to replenish the the level of glycogen there, and and, and guys who are carrying a lot of muscle mass, it is going to be quite a dramatic visual change. As as everybody have seen, if you see a bodybuilder completely depleted and then loaded, it's going to be yeah four or five kilos difference quite easily. Um, like uh, if, if you think that a, uh, especially an enhanced bodybuilder, there's probably going to be well over 800, 900 grams of muscle glycogen there. Each one of those grams of glycogen is going to be associated with three grams or so of water. So you're talking three kilos, uh, well, three to four kilos there quite easily. So um, it's not going to be the, that drastic from sort of show to post show unless somebody's got no idea of what they're doing throughout a peak week because they would assume to be would assume that they'd be doing some some level of um, glycogen loading but um yeah I, I think the effect is probably more likely due to a um, probably a lack of proper training programming I, I assume that the the best way would be to draw back volume prior to a, a show and then I suppose in a few days, probably even and lower the intensity to a degree as well, so that you can get that um, super compensation in the in, in the muscles. And if, another point I was going to make as well was about the the actual structures of the muscles that are um, affected in terms of glycogen replenishment. It's, it's the it's the intra um, myofibrillar uh, component of the muscle that's generally most disturbed by the, the, the damage and that only accounts around 10 or 15% of the uh, of the muscle cells. So I think even with damage, uh, the role that that would play in a potentially damaged muscle would be fairly minimal in terms of a, a sort of that glycogen pump, if, if you like, because most of that's going to occur outside of that, that area. But it's... Um, it's, it's certainly going to it's certainly going to make some difference theoretically. So it's something to be mindful of. But I think the um, I think the lack of tapering is probably more of a factor uh, uh, in, in terms of the glycogen utilization rather than the damage that's causing a, an inhibition of the of this resynthesis. Okay, okay, that's interesting. I guess it's it's going to be more of a more of a fatigue problem than anything else i think that so it's kind of it's more about overreaching it's more about programming you know it's more about basically avoiding ending up in a situation where future workouts are not as stimulating as they should be because we've got these uh, fatigue mechanisms happening from the low levels of glycogen that we're experiencing cool makes sense paul is everything okay over there yeah, I'm, I'm finally back. I actually had so much cool stuff to talk about there, and then my internet connection fell off, but I see you guys you guys towed the line there. There was something that Joe was hitting on uh, when I fell out that I thought was really interesting that falls in line. He, he talks about, first off, number one, I wanted to say, I really understand why you like Joe so much now because he thinks a lot like we do. He thinks mechanistically. So I've been asking him specific questions for a reason 
um, because I wanted to see if he would give numbers, but he didn't. He went back to the mechanisms, which I was like, I know why Chris likes this guy so much. He went back to the mechanisms. And that's what you and I do. And people get mad at us. They're like, just tell us. And we're like, no, it's important to understand the mechanisms. And he, Joe consistently gets back to the mechanisms. So I think that's, that's awesome. And I see why you connect with him and like him so much because he gets into the me- mechanistic points. He goes, look, we have this data that shows this stuff, but you need to understand the mechanisms behind your nutritional approach, which is freaking awesome. And something that you brought up that I remember that consistently came out. And the reason why I bring the mechanisms up is because Chris and I have, I guess you'd say a disdain for people who just regurgitate abstracts or look at studies that don't understand mechanisms and say, well, there's, we have so many studies on this side that show this thing, so many studies, and we're like, but do you even understand the mechanisms as to why the studies show what they do? And they don't. But Joe's talking about mechanisms. So one of the studies I remember where you're talking about uh, making sure you're going into the workout in a non-depleted state, that, that approach lines up with the data too, because if you, and I'm sure you've seen this, you remember the, the research that showed, uh, I think it was like fasted performance related to fed performance. And then the fasted performance would always, they would always underperform relative to the fed performance states. And that was one of the things that popped back in my head about that. Right. And you're like, Hey, look, make sure going into the workout rather than thinking about this glycogen depletion stuff, kind of reverse your thinking mechanistically to think, make sure I'm going into this workout adequately fueled. And that was a, a really poignant thing. I didn't want people to, to miss on. That was really awesome. It was like, Hey, get your mind around this whole, I'm re- replenishing glycogen and kind of take it from the nutritional approach of I'm fueling myself going into this workout. I mean, and ultimately that ties in perfectly with everything we've been saying about fatigue, which is that we want to avoid it rather than deal with it once it's happened, especially, you know, in the context of post-workout calcium amylated fatigue mechanisms. It's so much better to just avoid that and not let it happen rather than deal with it once it has happened. Chris and I, I mean, will always get this question of like, well, recovery. They do, like, well, don't, all the don't, time. How can we make you recovery happen? Because like, Chris made a joke and... I was said something like people always say, well, your food and sleep helps your recovery. And I'm, and, and he made a joke of, he's like, well, yeah, not sleeping and no food will definitely hamper recovery. However, if you're trying to mitigate fatigue mechanisms, your training actually needs to look a very particular way because once those particular fatigue mechanisms are in place, there's nothing you can do to actually stop them. And no, so once you've created a muscle damage problem, you can't sort of take an extra two hours of sleep and eat a load more food and, and magically get rid of all of that muscle damage. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's, it's not how the fatigue process And, and what continues. Joe was talking about there, make sure is like instead of thinking I need to replenish glycogen, make sure I'm going to do this workout adequately, adequately fueled to perform it. And that also falls in line with some common sense stuff I remember Dorian Yates talking about when people ask him at the time. And I think you can use peri-workout. I tend to use peri-workout um, uh, cyclic dextrin or what do they call it? Uh, or, or what's the other word? I say cyclic dextrin, but there's the other one. What's the other word for it, Joe? Um, cluster, cluster, dextrin, cluster, cluster, yeah, cluster dextrin. Yeah, and I, and I actually do notice a difference, but my carb intake during the day is pretty, pretty low. Um, but I, Dorian Yates talked about somebody asked him if he used anything during the workout. He goes, just water. He goes, why would I need anything? I only work out for 45 minutes. <laughs> and I always thought that was, was poignant was that Dorian never trained for more than 45 minutes to an hour. And he had, would have somewhere around 50. I think he did have a carbohydrate drink 
and with a, or a protein shake or something, but he'd already had breakfast and then a little drink. And he's like, I'm adequately fueled for my workout by the time that I go into it. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and to, to the time of day of training is going to account for a degree of what you should pay attention to. If, if say I'm training on a Monday, um, and on Sunday as well, you're nutritionally going to be preparing for that as, as well as the days um, preceding that. If, if you're trying to maintain levels of, of muscle glycogen, if, if you're training at um, 8 a.m. On a, on a Monday, then there's not much you can do on a Monday about that, that situation, apart from trying to f- refill liver glycogen to a degree, because we know that's going to be somewhat depleted through an overnight fast, though consuming um, some level of carbohydrates in the morning, even sort of 50 to 75 grams. Um, so maybe some dextrose and a protein shake or something like that. Maybe a, an hour before might be a, a, a good idea. Um, it, it's interesting though, because I, I know that when I dieting, for instance, even though my carbohydrate, daily carbohydrate uh, intake would be sort of 350-ish and fat would be dropped. Um, I do perform better if I take carbohydrate during a workout, even if it's 15, 20 grams of dextrose mixed with some sort of lime juice or something like that, um, like a lime cordial. Um, And I think it comes back to a point that you made earlier about that central effect and and the mouth rinsing studies, which are are quite interesting. That seems to be centrally mediated and we don't know whether that effect would last. Certainly if your glycogen levels were depleted to a, a, a large extent, we know that you probably wouldn't be able to override just by um, mouth rinsing. Yeah, but, it's not, I, I want to emphasize that. I. It's not a uh, placebo effect. I abs- It's a r- roughly the same, what you just described, 20 or 30 grams maybe of clustered dextrin yeah. within the workout. I noticed a, a immediate difference between my workouts when I have it and I don't, I've been doing this a long time. So mm-hmm. it's not like I'm some noob that I'm taking a pre-workout that's fueled with methamphetamines. I <laughs> like it. <laughs> I mean, they used to be right. Like it's like you had like Heisenberg meth in your old, um, what was it? Whatever. We are so was. getting banned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if I use it, you, you hit exactly right. 20 or 30 grams of cluster dextrin within my workout, massive difference between that. And when I just do something like, I, sometimes I'll use like an EAA just to have some, a flavor or something or whatever, or even use Gatorade. But I notice a difference when I use clustered dextrin and it's 20 or 30 grams. So it's not like this massive amount of carbohydrates. I'm just like shoving into my body. But there is definitely, and this conversation has been super interesting because it's almost like I can, my workout, I'm strong from start to finish when I have it. And when I don't have it, I definitely know that I, I can feel that drop off the, that last exercise or so relative com- compared to when I do have it. And I do think that ties in with the central fatigue effect that is occurring yeah. due to that glycogen yeah. loss. Yeah. There's, there's only, from what I can imagine, two mechanisms at play. One is a, a placebo effect, which you could, you could um, test if, if you, had somebody to um a way of doing it actually so so i, I mix it so i i, I think i know where we're gonna go with that we're like have somebody give it to me one day and then like document my workout yeah, just, uh, so, so say if you were to do like um i don't know if you have ribena over there or you have some different cordials like a, a juice that you dilute with water um if you had somebody add 
dextrose versus having somebody not adding a dextrose and, and see whether you notice a difference between those two because we know from the mouth rinsing studies it's not related to the sweetness of a, uh, a drink it's purely the your mouth sensing the the actual carbohydrate so if there's no carbohydrate in there it shouldn't work so if it's still working despite no carbohydrate then we can uh, we can say that it could be a, a placebo in fact, and so that only leaves um, sort of centrally mediated mechanism because there's no way that um, there's no way that it could be a fuel availability issue because we know that that's not going to get um, into the system. And, and if you're talking 15 grams of carbohydrate making that difference, then that's in the course of a day. There's going to be errors more anyway. So that additional 15 grams or so is, is not going to really make a difference from a, a few utilization. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's what I was getting at for the, the people. That's a very, very easy. It, could it be placebo? I mean, it could be. It doesn't feel like it to me. I noticed that from start to finish, as you said, there's a difference when I have it or when I'm just having EAA. Um, from a performance standpoint, I'm always strong all the way through my four or five exercises where when I don't have it. But as you were getting out there and something we've alluded to for the people who thinking you need these massive amounts of carbohydrates going in, it's just 20 or 30 grams. It's the, it, mm -hmm. I don't, you know what I mean? And I'm, so it's not like I'm ingesting 150 grams of like carbohydrates, like within this 45 minute period. And I'm like, Oh, that's the big difference. It's not very much. Yeah. I think it's, it's certainly something I would encourage people to uh, experiment with worst case it's going to have zero effect um and add sort of a 60 calories or so um at the, at the course of the day which you could always knock off your post carbohydrate intake so yeah worst case effect it's gonna it's gonna do nothing but um it could be the case that somebody might feel um yeah that that slight boost from it um it, it could be placebo and if it is a placebo then you'd still take it because if it's making you feel better and feel stronger and you're actually performing better then um, yeah, like if, if, if I'm working with an athlete and a placebos, if something's working or, or let, let's say if an athlete says, Oh, I'm, I'm taking this, this and this. And um, we know that from the research that one of the supplements they're taking isn't working, you wouldn't necessarily discourage them from taking it unless you knew it was going to have a, a negative effect or it was, sort of um very expensive or something like that if it's if it's something that's no effort to take it's minimal cost and it's going to be um physiologically neutral then yeah why why would you necessarily break that um why would you not want to take advantage of that of that placebo i think um it might have actually run its course but you it's it's a it's a tool that you can certainly use and it's a reason why a lot of sports people have these superstitions and things you might get tennis player bouncing the the ball a certain number of times before serves and things that because in their mind that that works works for them um obviously we're not we're gonna we don't want to verge into the uh the realm of uh bro science and, and things like that but i think that's one area where we can I don't know what, whether you would agree or disagree. I think there's um, some people might have uh, ethical sort of dilemmas about that. But if, if there's certainly no harm, physiological diet, something that yeah, I'd quite happily let people continue 
to take. It's that that's actually no. I think the placebo effect or the um, the diet desire for something has an absolute direct effect on the motivation, and the motivation has a direct effect on the ability to essentially do something with a lot of effort, which is increasing. Chris and I talked about this when we we went through the the connection there, the comparison there is if there is something that increases motivation, generally there's going to be an increase in effort, which is going to be an increase in motor unit recruitment, which means there's going to be better hypertrophy outcomes. And we're talking about the hypertrophy realm, no different than this, right? So if I have a placebo drink and I'm like, well, I can train super hard on this and I go in and I train super hard and it's really not doing anything physiologically, but I feel like it is, then it is. Well, it is. <laughs> then it is, right? So that's the, that's the placebo. It was like that D-ball study. You guys remember the D-ball study, right? Where they give them fake D-ball and the guys who were already highly trained ended up smashing all their PRs because they thought they were getting the anabol. That's sort of like a real study. We are so getting banned. You don't, <laughs> you, you, do you, you don't know about that study? Were they, they um, no, I have. I don't. I don't know about that study. You You're going to have to send me that. You're going to have to send me that study now. Yeah, I've, um, I've I've seen it written about. I'm not sure I've seen the original. Um, uh, the original text. Don't tell me I'm going to end up finding out a fake made up study. There was supposed to be, I think it is a real study though. Don't nod like that, Chris. I think it's a real study. When we get off this, I'm going to immediately look it up. I believe it's a real study and they actually had to find people to qualify for the next set of the, like the, it was going to be in two phases. So you had to qualify for the next phase and for whoever qualified, they gave them fake D-ball and then they continued bursting PRs. If I end up finding out that's a totally made up story i'm gonna just i'm gonna be devastated because i feel like it's one of those placebo but the point is i was getting as chris and i talked about this in the rep range and i don't remember which one that was but we talked about the fact it may have been and i don't remember which one it was but we talked about rep ranges because we were like that's a really easy thing to figure out because some people will say well different rep ranges are a novel stimulus i'm like no they're not what's the mechanism they're not any different it's the same mechanism but if you take somebody who enjoys doing sets of 12 then they're going to get better results by doing sets of 12 because of the simple fact that their motivation is going to be higher. Mm -hmm. If you take somebody who hates doing sets of 12, guess what's going to happen? They're going to have a lower degree of motivation. Their degree of effort is going to be lower. So their motor recruitment is going to be lower. So in the same correlation, if you take somebody, they're like, I drink this drink and I can train like an absolute beast. I'm like, then take the drink, bro. It doesn't matter physiologically if you can, if somebody tests you, that's one of the things and they say, well, I test you and you take this diet pill. It's not doing anything physiologically. But if somebody thinks it causes them to eat less or move more or whatever it is you want to do, then it does work. Like there's the placebo effect is still an incredibly strong thing. So it physiologically, the 20 or 30 grams, it could be helping to suppress the amount of central fatigue that I'm feeling due to, to, to blood glucose levels by simply keeping me at a, maybe a, an equilibrium, kind of a homeostasis type thing. But even if it's not, I just know if I have it, I do have better workouts. So that's the kind of, the, I guess, that thing where people will end up probably asking about peri-workout stuff. And then the other thing I was going to touch on, we were talking about the, um, you guys, when I came back in, was talking about contest prep stuff. And I, I'm, I hate that I fell out then because this was something I've thought about for a long time because I've worked with IFBB pros and helped them in contest prep and things like that. And one of the things that I found even then, this was, it's been a while, was that whenever we were going into peak week, I had a particular IPB pro and he, his legs would never come in. Right. I don't know if you, you've heard this before where they'll have like body parts that don't seem to come in. And what I found was the longer out we stopped training legs, the harder, drier, 
more separated, quote unquote, ripped everything that his legs would be come competition day. Now I completely understand all that was happening was those non-contractile elements, inflammation, edema, and all that stuff was allowed to subside. So his legs were perfectly lean, but they wouldn't, quote unquote, come in and be separated, hard, vascular, and all that stuff until all of that stuff got moved out. And basically all of that damage, those damaging effects were allowed to dissipate. So this was something Chris and I were talking about before we got on the show. And I was talking about physique competitors often approach that they'll get lean enough, but they won't look as hard, dry, full, et cetera, so forth. Because of everything that we're talking about mechanistically in this stuff, they'll go into, they'll keep training super hard all the way right up to the show, create a lot of muscle damage, doing a lot of long muscle link movements, doing high volume work, doing intensifiers, doing all this stuff. And then they're manipulating their water, their carbs, their sodium, and they're doing all of these various things in hopes that they'll be dry, hard, you know, full, all that kind of stuff. And something I thought about was how many times have you heard that competitors talk about that they look 10 times better two or three days after the show than they did on show day. But remember, they went a period of days where they didn't train, where they what would happen i think over those periods of days the amount of inflammation would be allowed to subside then they would actually store those carbohydrates better in the muscle cells and then they looked fuller drier harder everything they wanted on the stage but because their training sucks and then they're essentially trying to push this massive amount of carbohydrates into the muscle cell and that interference effect is occurring due to inflammation both i think the combination there of already being low in glycogen and having really poorly designed workouts contributes to them kind of showing up in that hard, watery, not full look that we often see. And do you remember years ago, I all over the place with this one, but the whole GH gut thing, when people talk about bodybuilders having GH gut and yet guys would retire and their waist would go back to normal. Well, if it was an increase in actual intestine size, that wouldn't happen. And what I think happens with a lot of those guys would be diuretic stuff. And they're trying to push down all these carbohydrates, right? To get quote unquote full and just sits there, digestive system. I guess that's a different topic, but I was thinking about all those various factors that have come in play that seem to be a little bit more modern. Whereas guys in the nineties, People always talk about we're harder, drier, denser. Dorian was known for that. And then as the years went on, that people would say, well, people aren't showing up. They're not as dry. There's not a condition. They're not all these things. And I think it really is a inflammation management factor. And that once you have that kind of taken care of, you can get to that state. So that was my thought when you were, when I came back in, you guys were talking about bodybuilders and kind of peak week. And I think where this is in that practical application setting is both the training and nutrition play so closely hand in hand that if somebody is creating inflammatory effects by training with a lot of volume and a lot of muscle damage, and then they're also in a low carbohydrate state already that they just compound each other. Absolutely. And I think ultimately that's got to be the message of this podcast more than anything else, really. And that's why we wanted Joe on board today to kind of fill in the gaps in the nutritional side of things, because ultimately this whole conversation is both a, a training and a nutritional issue. Yeah, it's, um, it's difficult to, I suppose, achieve the, the results that you want without getting both things right. Of course, the training is going to be the most important because that's the the ultimate driving stimulus and the nutrition's um, even though I'm the one who should be championing the nutrition, it's it's merely a supportive 
uh, agent sure. in, the, in a, the, sort of the anabolic process, you try to optimize things from a, an S and C point of view, and then you, you look at how nutrition can support that. So it's, sometimes it's been done the other way around. So people create these diets like the, the anabolic diet where they might be doing low carb, high fat for five days. And then, uh, was it De Pasquale something? Was it the anabolic diet? The anabolic diet. Yeah. De Pas- yeah, yeah Mario De Pasquale or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, yeah something I tried in, in uni and it was awful. I think I abandoned it after about a, a week. But um, that's something where people do the opposite. So they're, they're training around the diet, which I, I don't think that somebody should do. They should, you should try to optimize your training initially and then see how nutrition can support that because the, yeah, it's, um, the training is the, the far more important variable in the, in the equation. And you've got other things as well, stress, sleep, and um things like that because we know that without sort of getting carried away with different topics and things like um even sort of mental fatigue so if, if you're doing a really strenuous job or you're trying to finish a, a phd then that is going to have an effect on workout. Um, speaking from experience a, yeah, <laughs> even more experience effect as well so um yeah it's, it's about trying to manage everything and, and, and being prepared for those those training sessions from a nutritional point from a sleep point coming in um recovered and, and trying to get the most out of that training session and create the um the stimulus that you're trying to achieve and, and yeah ultimately it comes down to i believe um from from what i think you seem to believe chris is about yeah, that that sort of creating that tension um, and those sort of high um, high level motor motor unit and the fibers that are associated with those. Absolutely, feels like we're wrapping up now, Paul. Is that is that fair to say? No. Oh dear. No, no, no I'm getting really tired. I know you're getting really tired. You well, I you, there was things that you didn't even get around to covering with the endurance stuff. Here, here was we can we can here's the one I did want to ask Joe about because somebody people asked me about this 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 past week. Back when I was doing in quote unquote gaining phases, um, and I'll try to make this one quick so that we can we try we usually keep them to right around two hours. That naturally, what it's we we don't have a time limit, but Chris gets tired because he's low in glycogen and only eats eggs once a day, and then he he that this is about the part where he <laughs> where he where this whole the whole carbon yeah, it's got nothing to do with the fact that I just <laughs> flew across the continent, uh, nothing at all. Yeah, didn't sleep overnight. Flights, yeah. I know so. <laughs> Uh, from a gaming phase, I got asked about this past week when I was coming up and people were talking about bulking to me, bulking meant like a lot of calories over maintenance. That was the consensus. Like if you wanted to grow, you had to eat like 11 billion calories over your maintenance level. And since then, or at least recently, I feel like there's definitely been a shift, uh, intelligent shift to, we don't need this massive uh, caloric surplus to actually su- properly support muscle growth. What is your take on how to intelligently approach a muscle gain type cycle? Say the next three months or six months or however long somebody's going to be in. And I know that there's a multitude of variables, so I don't want you to feel like you've got to cover every variable. It's, it's okay to kind of be like to give up some broad strokes here. But I got asked this, and my question is: I don't touch the nutritional stuff that often. 
But if I did another gaining phase, I would approach it differently where I'm looking at maybe 200 to 300 calories above maintenance a day. And that would probably be about where I personally would say I'm not going to go above that because you cannot force feed muscle growth. Everything we know about creating the stimulus and allowing that stuff to happen, mitigating muscle damage and the fatiguing effects and all that kind of stuff. Once we get that out of the way, I just don't feel like you need to be in this massive surplus of calories to properly support muscle growth. If I approached a bulk now, it'd be a bulk, I call it a bulk because I wouldn't call that a bulk. I wouldn't call 200 calories over bulk. To me, bulking meant you were doing like 1,000, 2,000 calories over maintenance. That's what, to me, bulking used to emphasize. You were going to just John McCallum, giant protein shakes, 3,000 calorie, 3,000 calorie protein shakes. I don't know if you remember that, that stuff. Chris, do you remember any of that stuff at all? You're shaking your head. No. So uh, you guys don't even remember this. So back in the day, they used to, you'd make a protein shake that would be like two to 3,000 calories, whole blender. And then the idea was you would just drink that shake over the day, right? You'd put it in the fridge and then you'd sip it over the course of the day. So at the end of the day, there was your two or 3,000 extra calories. That is so absurd to me now. And so now if I was going to approach a bulk, I would never, or, or I don't even, I'm still calling it a bulk, but if I approached a a lean gaining phase, whatever you want to call it. It would something be like maybe two or 300 calories over maintenance. What it, what would be your approach to any young guys that are trying to approach a muscle gaining phase from an intelligent training standpoint? What are kind of the things they need to emphasize there or look for in terms of calorie, protein, carbon, take that kind of thing? Um, I think if, if we're looking at purely muscle gain with, um, with a certain level of calories, there's no good evidence that I've seen that shows that you require um, even more than a more than a maintenance level of intake. But we know that logically, if we want to gain mass, then that there needs to be a needs to be a surplus. So, what I would what I would do is, is um, within the whole level of programming is, is look to see what somebody could expect to gain over the course of say three to six months if um you know if, of course if uh, if somebody's a beginner versus a sort of intermediate or advanced level the 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 amounts of gains are going to be um fewer and far between so an advanced level lifter might expect to gain more even um yeah and naturally even a, a couple of pounds a year would be a would be a result in terms of pure muscle tissue so, um, I, think I, I you probably into... need to say that a, a few more times. I think one of the, the more frustrating things for me is dealing with guys online that have been training for significant periods of time that are like, I still want to add another, you know, seven to 10 pounds of muscle mass. And I'm like, I don't think people realize that's, that's going to be your first five years of training or so. Like where maybe you'll get a little more than that if you're on one end of the side, but I think 10 pounds of actual lean tissue in your first few years of training is probably going to be right around what you're going to be looking at for a good, for a good amount of gain. I, I don't remember what the metrics were for, for it exactly. Uh, but I, I think the degree that muscle can be synthesized maximally, I, I want to say it's something, is it like 10 grams a day? Um, I think that's probably been, uh, on the generous side, for because um, if, if you're talking in, in a two-month phase, that's a pound and a half of muscle. So, and 
Yeah. Uh, I, I think I'm literally talking about new, uh, like almost like new, uh, yeah, it's like gaining at a very fast rate. Car. I think it's. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in if, terms of if actual, somebody is trying uh, to. Yeah. So, so if, if somebody's trying to gain um, muscle maximally, yeah, I'd love to see what their reasonable uh, rate of muscle gain would be and probably double that as a, as a as a total weight gain target so if somebody were looking to gain five pounds of muscle um so it's like just over two kilos in say three to six months um then i would I'd, I'd use a target of double that divide that over the course of um a few weeks and use that as a proxy of the the, the rate of weight gain that you would like to see if you go in much above that, then you know that all you're doing then is just gaining additional uh, fat tissue. Um, obviously, you wouldn't want to undershoot because you'd want to you'd want to push things as much as possible. But if you set that upper limit there as maybe as, as double, like I say, then I think it's a reasonable target. Um, and, then, and then keep reassessing. I think that's all you can really do um, then in terms of um, sort of scale scale mass. Maybe take photos as as well, um, if you've got somebody skin fold calipers or any other sort of body comp measure that you can use to get an idea of, of what's happening, then that could be that, that could be used. Uh, in terms of where the surplus is going to come from, there's there's no reason to modify protein um, at all. If if fat intake is really low then you can I suppose you could increase that but I generally just alter carbohydrate so yeah um so, so people I'm working with if they're trying to gain uh muscle tissue then yeah they, they would, uh, would use as a carbohydrate so I'd increase that by a certain level that results in probably around a 10 to 15 percent surplus uh, total calories so if you get someone so two to three thousand calories a day, and then that's going to be around that sort of um, two hundred to uh, sort of uh, four hundred calories per day mark uh, over over maintenance. Because maintenance as well isn't isn't static. With some people, if you increase calories by five percent, then that would be their new maintenance because they they might adapt in a thermogenically to that to that increase. So you need to go above. And beyond where that um, adaptive thermogenesis is going to be. So, um, for people who are harder gainers, then it's typically going to be a little bit more that you have to push things. And somebody, in somebody, even five percent surplus could be sufficient. That's why it's important to make that initial setting. So even if it's ten percent, and then um, trying to be really strict with that and ensure that that adherence is there, and then we measure over i think every two weeks is probably fine for sort of body composition measures you could look at um scale weight a few times a week and use an average of that over the course of the week that's going to give you a more accurate representation of what's truly happening and of course in the, in the first few days to a week you're likely going to get some additional glycogen topping off anyway so that initial spike in weight is probably going to be purely glycogen water so i think give it a week before you start looking at that rate of, of increase man there and, was and so many good nuggets 
right there and that just that couple of minutes that you put together there i hope nobody misses out on that and just comes back and asks a simple simple question like well how many calories i think uh kind of cohesively what you got at there was that make a kind of a time frame um if you're planning on putting on x amount of, of lean tissue then kind of shoot for that double amount of body weight and that's something really cool because that's what i've always told people if you're gonna if you think you want to gain three or five pounds of muscle expect to gain anywhere from eight to twelve pounds overall that's about where you're going to be shooting for and then the other thing is have some ways to actually measure body composition um, so that you know that you're not putting on excessive amount, amounts of fat, whether it's skin calipers, DEXA scan, and body. Just use something. You say, I'm going to set a baseline for this, and then as I'm going forward, if this is showing an exponential amount of fat gain, then I'm clearly eating too many calories. And then from a calorie perspective, start at that anywhere from 10% extra a day in a carbohydrate increase, and then you're going to basically massage it from there on out. Did I, did I hit all those points pretty good? Yeah, spot on. Yeah, spot on pull. Okay, because like I said, that was a lot of really good nuggets there, and that's hard to summarize for for some people because they just want you to tell them an exact number. They can just be blindly, but you really put together some some nice approaches there for somebody who's like, I want to approach an intelligent mm-hmm. gaining phase where I'm limiting my fat gain and putting on lean tissue, and those are all the bullet points that somebody needs to be be aware of. So that was uh, that was really awesome. Chris, did you want to go over any of the endurance stuff that you talked about prior? <laughs> Not really now, no. I think, to be honest, we've covered pretty much all of the physiology, which is my main concern. I just had some examples from the endurance side of things that I thought were interesting. But honestly, I think we've done a really good job of, of, of covering the material. So I'm, I'm happy to leave that. Yeah, we can we can totally wrap up now. Um, I, I feel like that we... We covered our bases with that. I know we had a couple of internet problems, but I think you guys were talking um, about what we were had when we did the outline. I think you guys were covering the, some of that stuff when it went in. The only thing I did want to hit on was this was a kind of a cool thing that happened that re-sparked this conversation a little bit with Chris and myself was that I have a friend, um, Alan Aragon. I don't, I don't know if you know who Alan is, Joe, but um, Alan and I are really yeah, good friends. So. Yeah, with... Um... We we were the first people, me and um, look a personal trainer based in London. We had him over in the UK in 2013, I think it was. That was his first international um, tour. That yeah, yeah, getting his passport for, to come and, and visit us there. So we've uh, yeah maintained a, a friendship since. He's a yeah really good good guy, Alan. Uh, yeah, and we pretty yeah. much think the same on most things. Really, there's there's not really. Not really anything I can think off the top of my head where I would um, uh, disagree. Say so I think there's, there's you find that sort of middle ground, and then at some point, so yeah, yeah. The reason why I was bringing that up was because um, there were, we've had a a lot of research. Remember the keto craze hit again, like recycle got recycled back through again quite a few years ago, right? The keto the the craze hit everybody was doing keto this keto that keto everything and then they had a multitude of studies to come out showing even in a surplus you really couldn't gain any appreciable amount of lean tissue on ketogenic diets and so alan had reposted kind of a new one i guess that it hit that said you know it was just a it, it was adding more to the body of evidence that ketogenic diets are not a good way to approach gaining muscle mass and I was, I, because Chris and I had, had already had this particular conversation. I was like, bro, I was like, do you know why that 
happens? I'm like, it, it's because of excitation contraction coupling failure. And I, I shot him over the information and he was like, oh my gosh. He goes, yeah, that's the mechanism. That's clearly the, the mechanism, right? That's going on there. And that was kind of something that brought this, this stuff back up. Is is your kind of your take on ketogenic diets? Because you just said if somebody's going to trying to gain mass, you the the main thing they need to focus on. And I've always said that as well. It's just your protein is going to stay stagnant. As long as you got that dialed in, you're going to increase your carbohydrate intake to drive that gaining phase. Is your idea on ketogenic diets pretty much the same as it's going to be almost impossible to gain lean tissue in a ketogenic diet, even in a surplus? I think it depends on the, the training that's being performed as well. I think if you're trying to gain through doing a lot of um, typically glycolytic activities, so if you're trying to do sort of um, higher reps, um, short rest periods, longer um, and really higher volume, then you're naturally going to be at a disadvantage because you can't tap into glycolysis to the same degree as if you were consuming a, a carbohydrate-based diet. If you were doing sort of longer rest periods, low reps, then you would be relying a little bit more, at least, on um, phosphocreatine um, stores, and that would be resynthesized to, to a large degree with those rest periods. So I don't think it's impossible to gain with that, but I think you're not doing yourself any favors by adopting a, a keto approach to trying to optimize muscle gain. But like it's, um, you know, you've got a question, why would somebody want to do that? Um, <laughs> so, we, we have it, questions like that every week though. We have questions like that every yeah. week. Why would somebody want to approach their training this way? Like we have that exact question every week. So you're I think I might start week. using that as my standard response to everything. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> so joe's like he's bringing up stuff like that it's like i don't yeah i don't know why you'd want to do that and chris are like we're we're, we ask that question almost every time we talk <laughs> we, we have an example presented to us but we're like but why would you want to do that so i i think there was something called a targeted you remember that targeted ketogenic diet approach and i think the idea was that you yeah. actually use carbohydrates during your training like a peri and then the rest of the time was keto yeah, I think, um, yeah, so it was the Lion McDonald book, wasn't it? The, uh, the ketogenic diet, I think, um, I think that came out around 25 years ago now. It's quite an old, an old one. Um, I think the issue, uh, that can be with that is it's difficult to make use of those carbohydrates if you are adapted to keto or more difficult because there's, um, down regulation. A lack of, meta a lack of metabolic flexibility, right? Yeah, uh, I think it's lactate dehydrogenase. It's the, the activity that decreases, so it's harder to store um, glycogen. It, it's it's why the this sort of um, if from an endurance standpoint, where where they want to try to get the best of both by fat adapting and then carb loading. Well, it's you can't optimize the, the fuel use of, of, of both fuels, fats and carbohydrates. Yeah. So if you're going to pick one, pick carbohydrates, um, and, and with the exception of sort of um, Ultra marathons, um, where, where you are running at, uh, or forming at a very submaximal intensity, it's you can make an argument for a ketogenic um, diet, a completely fat adapter, because you 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 sort of get rid of the the need then for that intra competition 
fueling because you can rely on your um, fat stores without getting. Um, yep, and it's been a while it's since a I've gone different. through. Yeah, it's been a while since I've gone through all that data, but that's what I remember looking at it was that in the ultra marathon stuff, it didn't. There didn't seem to be a difference. There, the 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 performance seemed to be fairly equal between people who were fat adapted uh, and people who were running carbohydrate type loading or carbohydrate diets. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that definitely. And Louise Burke's written a couple of good reviews i think it was um was it called fat adaption for endurance that the final nail in the coffin and there's a, a second part to that as well which is a, a more recent one i think they were, were published about 10 years apart i think maybe 2008 and 2018 or maybe a little bit before but from a um from a from muscle hypertrophy standpoint even if you are able to perform to a uh, a degree with your resistance training. We know that in terms of cell signaling, you're going to be, it's a disadvantage as well. We know that um, mTOR activation is going to be suppressed with a, a lower carbohydrate intake, which I think is AMPK mediated. I think it had a, a, yep. I think the AMP activity increases and then that has a, an effect on uh, M two I think it's the the increase of AMPK that has the effects. Um, I could it could be it could be the opposite, but it's been a few years since I've uh, looked at the sort of the exact mechanisms uh, around that. But yeah, we, we know that there's going to be suboptimal gains with a lower carbohydrate diet when it comes to uh, things like bodybuilding. But you could still you could still make decent gains if the programming was done. Um, well, but then you're programming in response to your diet rather than the other way around. So I think it should be the case that you're setting up the optimal program and then supporting that with a with a diet. Um, there might be situations where somebody needs to do that. So if somebody's treating epilepsy with a, a ketogenic diet, which can be which can be done effectively, then you could make an argument. Well, well to adapt the training and to to fit this, but that's not going to be the the average person is asking that the question. I think that the usual response would be, um, yeah, just change your change your diet and, and change that in response to a, a better better programming. Yep. All right, we can wrap this guy up now. Uh, Joe, I want to say thanks for coming on, dude. You have been awesome. Like I said a while back, I understand why Chris. Uh, really wanted to get you on and really spoke highly of you. You're you're pretty much like we are. We're all about the mechanisms rather than kind of force feeding people. Um, you know, like here's a uh, what's that? I have a joke about that. I said, um, give a give a man a, a fish for a day, like he eats, but try to teach a man a mechanism. He'll call you a a hole for you know trying to. I can't remember how. Just like Chris is shaking his head. That's a, drags, that's a Drax comment, if ever there was one. <laughs> well, I mean, everybody tells me I look just like Dave Batista, so it's, 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 that's a real thing. It, it's, I appreciate the, your absolute, your, your approach to this. It's very similar to Chris and I approaches to muscle physiology, and that's clearly why uh, I understand he spoke so highly of you and your approach to all this stuff. So, dude, you have been awesome. Uh, there was a, we were going to, we talked about, um, at some point, we want to cover the training status of naturals versus enhanced guys and so you know something we would you know probably want to have you back on so we can kind of go through some of that stuff too because i think all of this ties in together 
Yeah, that, that'd, be, that'd be brilliant. And um, yeah, thanks again, Chris, for uh, inviting me on and, and, and you, Paul, for uh, agreeing for me to come on. It's, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation with you both. And it's, yeah, it, it, it's good to see how everything all fits together. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's good to see the, the discussion of the mechanisms as well. I think um, it's important because the, the end of the, the typical uh, phrase is that as if you, you teach a man to fish, then he can sort of fend for himself. And, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to set those those guidelines and those principles that people can use rather than then thinking, oh, but what's this exact magic number? Well, that's going to that's gonna vary depending on who you are and a million other things. Uh, but if you can talk in principles and uh, which are back mechanistically, then I think it gives you a bit more to go on to be able to customize things um, for yourself and, and yeah, optimize optimize things in that way. Where can but, um, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, well where can they for, first off? Where can uh, people find you on social media and find you to, uh, if they want to hire you for your services and that kind of thing, where can they find you at? Yeah. So, um, my social media has not been that active of, of late, but I've, I've got a, a bit of content that I've put together that will be pushing out over the next few weeks. And that'll be, um, that'll be a bit more consistent. So I'm on Twitter that I can be found at, at Joseph Agun, um, J-O-S-E-P-H-A-G-U. That's all one word. Um, Facebook is um, uh, facebook.com slash Joseph Agun Nutrition, or it can be found by uh, Elite Nutrition Coaching through the, the search bar in, in Facebook. My website is um, Elite Nutrition Coaching. That's all one word. Uh, that's .com. Um, so if, if you would like to work with me, I, I maintain a, a small client list at any one, at any one time. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you can reach me there to, to book in for calls or a, more of a, an online coaching um, type package if, you, if you'd like. Um, yeah, Instagram and TikTok, not on that yet, but I'll be setting one up. So the Instagram will be... Um, Joseph Agu Nutrition as well, so the same as the um, the same as the Facebook. So yeah, I expect to see some things posted on there. And, and yeah, I'll be following you guys on on those those platforms anyway. And, and I'm sure that Chris can point people in the in a direction if they're unable to find me. But um, if you type my name, and you, you should be able to find most of the social media um, platforms. But yeah, no, I'm more than happy to come on again. And uh, I think that's an interesting discussion, actually, the the difference between sort of natural and enhanced athletes and whether sort of nutritional requirements at least do do vary. So, yeah, I'll be, I'll be well up for discussing that. Absolutely. And just highly recommended, don't get on TikTok. You, it's it's an absolute – unless you want to argue with teenagers who think they know more than everybody else who's ever existed in the history of the universe – just avoid TikTok. Um, that that's my recommendation for that. Yeah, so, um, Chris, where can everybody find you at on your social media? You are not Chris Beardsley. You wish you were Chris Beardsley on Instagram. You're just Chris A Beardsley. 
on Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram, yeah. Um, just a quick plug of my mentorship program because that starts um, on the 1st of August. So it's the last one for 2023. So if people want to get involved in that, then please uh, contact me. Contact me either through Instagram, as Paul was saying, Chris A. Beardsley. Um, contact me on um, Twitter or um, through email or the website. All of the details are in the um, uh, sort of uh, information on Spotify for this first podcast. Um, this time, I'm very pleased to announce that the mentorship will be featuring uh, the potential for an additional module, which Joe has very kindly agreed to do. Um, so it will be a nutrition module uh, for hypertrophy. Um, and uh, basically it's optional, so it won't be, um, you know, sort of uh, necessary to complete the course. But if people are interested in that, then they can contact me or they can contact Joe. Um, if anybody's done the mentorship before and they want to do that nutrition module, then please get in touch with either me again or Joe. That's totally fine. doesn't matter either way. Um, and we can start setting that up. Um, did you want to say anything about that nutrition module, Joe? Yes, yeah, so um, yeah, as Chris mentions, it'll be based around um, muscle hypertrophy, so it'll be more or less a, an A to Z of going through all that. So similar to the sort of calorie setting, how you set protein, other macronutrients, nutrient timing, uh, supplementation, goal setting, sort of assessing progress. So trying to condense that into a into an hour, so to get the most bang for the buck from that and. Um, yeah, and then hopefully we can expand that at some point in the future and roll out some more comprehensive modules. But hopefully that will give a, a good taster for, for people to see and uh, uh, appreciate your Chris uh, plugging that and yeah, the opportunity to um, do that alongside your mentorship as well. It's um, yeah, much appreciated. No, I think it's going to be a great addition. Everybody has been asking me for it for, for the last couple of years. So, um, you know, it's always something I wanted to add. So it's a, it's a great thing for me to be able to offer as well. So, yes. Um, but, yeah, and in answer to Paul's question, yes, I'm on SNC Research everywhere else. So if people want to find me, that's where to go, sncresearch.com in terms of a website, SNC Research on Patreon, SNC Research on Twitter. Generally speaking, that's where I'm to be found. Yep. And Chris, of any of those places for anybody who wants to go through the mentorship program, which one do you feel like you end up responding to easiest? Um, as far as the mentorship program is concerned, the easiest way to get in touch with me is um, through the website, sncresearch.com. Um, but if people want to go to Patreon, they can ask me direct messages there. Instagram is also fine. I would say those three are probably the best ways to, to get uh, in touch with me about the mentorship program. For anybody who is questioning it, uh, I went through Chris's mentorship program. It absolutely is phenomenal. I will give you, somebody asked me this this week, so I'll help you continue to plug your mentorship program. But the best way, in my opinion, to prepare is to go through, you have a, an enormous FAQ um, that somebody can go through that, that covers a lot of the stuff that you do in your mentorship program. And I highly advise that they go through all of that stuff so that way they don't feel like they're getting blitzkrieg. <laughs> by the amount of information you throw at them and they very condensed period because you've done the mentorship program so many times you can go through it with your with your eyes closed and if anybody thinks that the podcast is going at a high level 
I'm telling you, be prepared for the mentorship program because Chris is going to throw stuff at you. And if you, if you aren't buckled down and strapped on, by the time that it's uh, that hour is up, you're going to be like, what just happened to my life? So I highly recommend people do a preparatory type thing to go into it and have some semblance. So if you're a how many sets of, for biceps in a week guy, probably need to brush up through the FAQ before you do the mentorship program. Do you feel like it's a fair assessment, Chris? I, I actually can operate at any level that um, people arrive at. So I, I will absolutely teach the level that people are at. I establish that relatively quickly. Um, and um, I, I'm very happy teaching whatever level people arrive at. So I, I think it's fair to say that if people have done a little bit of uh, walking through the FAQ, that they will get more out of it. If people um, have, have, have read it in detail and they understand it very well, then I can literally teach them everything I know you know I mean basically the mentorship is designed for pe for me to teach every everything I know and if people come in prepared then I literally will tell them everything I know and that would probably be quite overwhelming if uh, they weren't I, prepared. I don't but think that's I don't think that's fair I, I think that's doing yourself a disservice because we've had <laughs> talks for going on years now and that, that you still whip out stuff on me every week you didn't there there's Chris is such a wealth of knowledge I feel incredibly blessed to have him um as somebody I consider my own mentor as far as muscle physiology and this stuff in life so I don't think that you could ever teach someone everything you know in just some interesting program. but it's a lot of stuff and somebody would come away with it being astronomically better at this particular field than they were going into it so i highly yes and it. i think that it, i think that it's it would be suitable for anybody who's listening to this podcast it would be absolutely fine um you know if they wanted to maximize sure they could do some reading beforehand but I, i'm confident that i can teach uh, any level that people arrive at I, I don't think there's any prerequisites in that respect but you know thank you very much for your endorsement i do appreciate it absolutely you've been a huge huge blessing in my life for the last few years in a multitude of ways bro um, thank you so that's where you guys can find chris where you can find joe as you guys know you can find me at lift run bang one i've been saying i don't know since I started podcast i'm going to change my name but i am eventually maybe i'll just keep saying that as an on-running joke at this point but um that's where you can find all of us across our social media that is our wrapping up of this particular segment this podcast the chris and paul show episode nine i don't even think i opened with episode nine episode nine uh thanks to everybody who made it this far we'll look to forward to seeing you next time